Seven blessings to you all. This is the second episode of Archmaster Buzzkill's Personal Studies, part of the podcast series called Through the Moon Door, which meets uh, desperate, in desperate need of a new snappy name. It's a podcast all about George R. R. Martin's wonderful fantasy series, A Song of Ice and Fire. If this is your first time listening or watching live, thank you, I am very glad to have you here. Uh, if you come here after listening to episode one, thank you very much for coming back, tuning in for more. Today, this is not only the first time I'm doing a live stream for my podcast episode, I am also, I have my first ever guest, and what a guest it is to start with. Uh, Amy, I would say you probably best introduce yourself, because I'm inve inevitably going to forget some of the many, many things that you do, so go ahead. Hi, my name is Amy. Um, my fandom name is Amy Blackfire, that's A-E-M-Y, and then of course Blackfire with a Y. I'm a PhD student of Chinese literature, and one day I decided to start a blog on Chinese literature and Eastern symbolism in A Song of Ice and Fire, and I now have a YouTube channel where I read those essays to you and have guests on to talk about it. And uh, I've also branched out to His Dark Materials. I'm going to do some Avatar The Last Airbender um, uh, content coming in 2021, but for the purposes of this episode, one thing you definitely need to know about me is that I have done, taken a lot of classes on colonial and post-colonial studies in graduate school, and I'm very interested in Orientalism and the representation of Asiatic cultures in Western fantasy. And I actually have a video on my channel, um, you can find me on YouTube uh, or follow me on Twitter, and I have a, uh, an essay and a video where I talk to Lo the Links about Orientalism and colonialism in his dark materials. So I've already talked about this subject when it comes to Philip Pullman series, and now I'm excited to talk about it when it comes to George R. R. Martin's. Yes. So what she's saying is she's way more qualified to talk about this topic than I am, which is why I'm especially glad that she agreed to do this. Well, I shouldn't say agreed. You offered it. I didn't well, even yeah, ask. you you asked if I could look at your notes, and every time anyone does that, I always just offer to come on because I get excited about the topic when you send me the notes. So, <laughs> yes, I'm going to send you all my notes for my future episodes. <laughs> okay, so obviously, as I said, this is only the second ever episode of this new podcast. Last episode, I talked about the dragons in A Song of Ice and Fire, and kind of where they fit into the the greater context of icon iconic fantasy dragons. I particularly talked about the dragon from Beowulf, that doesn't have a name, so I called it Beowulf Spain, and Tolkien's Smaug, of course. Can't have a discussion about dragons without bringing him up. You can listen to the episode on a number of podcast platforms, as well as on my YouTube channel, which you are on right now if you're watching this live. It's called Through the Moon Door. Moon Door is two words, just like in the books. Uh, leave a like and subscribe while you're here. And let me have some of that sweet, sweet feedback in the comment section. I need it. Today's episode is going to be a bit of a risky one. Obviously, everyone loves the dragons, but the same is not necessarily true for their mom. Uh, Daenerys has always been a somewhat divisive figure in the fandom. There are those who cheer her as a, as a feminist icon who rises to power in this horrible patriarchal society that she is forced to live on. And there are others who, who see her as, you know, her father's daughter, the mad queen, power-hungry, mass-murdering maniac, who is not really, you know, far better than all the people she tries to overthrow. The controversial season finale or series finale of Game of Thrones really only deepened the rift between uh, Danny fans and Danny critics or 
some would say haters maybe uh, <laughs> those who those who love Daenerys claim that she fell victim to bad misogynistic writing that the the character was sacrificed so that David Benioff and D.B. Weiss could move on to their Star Wars trilogy that has since been cancelled. So that's fun. Uh, while Danny critics, they only felt validated, insisting that the Silver Queen's violent edge had been part of her character from the beginning. In a piece for Wear Your Voice magazine, that's hard to say, Nyla Burton had this to say about that controversial uh, fifth episode, The Bells. This bloodbath was consistent with what has always been Danny's creed, entitlement, imperialism, and colonialization. It reveals a cognitive dissonance among both the show's viewers and writers, who support or accept Danny's colonial interests when her subjects are non-white representations of indigenity, but will shudder in horror and disbelief when her victims are white. This uh, marks only one voice in a whole chorus of critics who accuse Game of Thrones, the TV show, of being racist and the character of Daenerys to be a white savior. This is a debate that's been going on for a long time. When confronted with this criticism at a convention, George R. R. Martin said that the ethnicity of the people that Danny saves in the show uh, is, is the result of logistical reasons because the show was shot in Morocco where they, they cast all their extras. Martin points out that in the books, slavery is not race-based. Uh, it's modeled after the slavery of the Greek city-states, where whoever lost the most recent war was forced into bondage. Do you mind if I uh, step in just to say one thing about this? Yes. Um, So I found this really interesting, uh, this this kind of pushback from Martin, and I would then push back on his pushback and say that, is he not obsessed with this idea of magical bloodlines? So she is representing okay, let's take white out of it. Let's take the color of the skin out of it. Let's just look at bloodlines. She's representing this kind of last descendant of the one of the main dragon, or, you know, one of the dragon rider families, right? We're told in the world book that there were about 40 and the Targaryens were actually low on the rung of the ladder, right? Whereas in the Nine Free Cities, you have people that are of Valyrian descent, but they're not of dragon rider descent. So she does have a type of bloodline superiority that I would argue is represented in the books. So whereas the show might have pushed that further into a racial superiority, I don't think that there's absolutely nothing there about heritage to be talked about. Yes. Like she still she still has those it's kind of this it's kind of similar to the elves in Lord of the Rings, where she, she has that sort of like superior superior genes in a in a weird kind of way. Um yeah, so I mean, I certainly also think that it's an important point to raise. I think Martin has a point when he says that in the books, the slavery is not a race-based slavery. Like the, the characters, the slavers in the books, they don't enslave people based on the color of their skin, which it certainly looks like they're doing in the show. But on the other hand, this obviously doesn't exempt Martin's portrayal of race and culture and gender and all these other things from some critical analysis, which is what we're here for. So in this episode... We will take a look at the Daenerys' arc all the way from Game of Thrones to Dance with Dragons, analyzing it from a post-colonialist perspective, I would say. Big words. Um, <laughs> and so the question is, did David and Dan turn her, did they turn her into this white savior in the show? Did George R. R. Martin write her to be one? Is she one in the books as well? Uh, this and more we will all discuss in, I don't know how long it's going to take, an hour, two hours, who knows. But I think before we delve into Danny as a character specifically, I think we should talk about the 
the fantasy genre's general problem when it comes to Orientalism. Now, you obviously did a stream with uh, Low, Low the yes, Links. Low the Is Links. that their name? Yes. Uh, where you talked about Orientalism in uh, His Dark Materials, which is another fantasy series. There's obviously Lord of the Rings, uh, all, all sorts of stuff. And the fantasy genre has never really engaged in a lot of critical self-examination or analysis of, of colonialism until the 21st century. I'm sure there's some, some, some current works that go into it. But most fantasy is uh, set in societies that are, that are based on European medievalism, European Middle Ages which chronologically is t obviously took place before colonialism was a thing. But uh, this focus on European-inspired culture may still, of course, reproduce the, the constructs that underlie colonialism and colonialist thinking. Do you think that's a fair point? So yeah, I, I think that's a fair statement. Um, and something that Lo and I argue in our video about his dark materials, and I apologize for people that are not familiar with the series, um, but you don't need to to understand our point, which is that um, Philip Pullman was um, a white Englishman growing up in the 50s, and uh, George R. R. Martin was also a white man growing up in New Jersey in America in around the same time. And they grew up in colonialist powers. We are, yes, in a post-colonial world, but I don't want post to make you think it's over. Uh, Franz Fanon, who is a critical race uh, theorist, um, he was writing mostly in the 50s and 60s. Uh, he wrote about how decolonization of the mind is always going to be there. So you can, you know, militarily pull out of a place, but the mindset of the colonized is still going to be there. And it's an ongoing process that never quite ends. If you want to use a real world example, we can look at South Africa and apartheid, right? Uh, apartheid is technically abolished, but for many uh, black South Africans, the realities of apartheid are still there. So when we're looking at George R. R. Martin and his series, I would argue that you can't just, like with most Western fan, actually all Western fantasy, I'll just go ahead and do a blanket statement. You can't divorce the real world concerns and they, um, from them. So they're going to reproduce the same colonial power structures that we have in our world because domination, right? Racial superior, in, uh, superior, inferior dichotomy, all of these are going to be represented in this series. And there's, it's only a question to what extent the author is, is kind of being influenced by these real world situation, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, circumstances, not if they are. It, they absolutely are. So go in when you're reading this as yes, they are, and then say to what extent is it being reproduced in the story? In what ways are these tropes being, you know, kind of turned on their head? But to, to go, oh, well, let's just look at it for in its own world and in its own universe. In literary analysis, I think if you're if you do that, uh, I know if I tried to do that, my professors would get on to me. Um, it's not uh, it's it's a little bit naive of a way to kind of look at these series. You can enjoy them in their own world. Absolutely. But to completely reject the real world realities is, I think, a disservice to the literature itself. Yes, very good point. I was just going to add to that that uh, the periods that inspire so, so much uh, fantasy literature in medieval times, obviously, they predate colonialism, but the texts don't predate colonialism. So the co colonialist mindsets can still find their way into settings that are inspired by, by periods in human history that predate colonialism. 
And and we um, see warfare in these medieval times where you have peoples taking over other peoples, you know? It's not like everyone was just sticking to their own kingdom. So it was a lot of early colonialism going on. Um, just like, you know, I obviously study Chinese history. There was a lot of colonialism going on even in 3000 BCE in China, right? This idea of taking over another culture and saying that yours is superior. This has gone through all out through throughout human history. So you can't just say, oh, Middle Ages is not 21st century, the 20th century, move on. Yes. And I think one of the ways that we can sort of, uh, one of one of the most blatant or, or obvious influences or the instances where we can see sort of or Orientalist mindsets making their way into popular fantasy is when we look at maps, fantasy maps, in most modern fantasy literature usually depict, or the maps usually depict uh, West Coasts very much in the style of the original Middle-earth map, which was, uh, Tolkien intended Middle-earth to be a, a prehistoric version of actual planet Earth. And, you know, the Hobbits, like, Hobbiton is at the same altitude as Oxford, so it was, like, supposed to be ancient mythological Britain and all that stuff. But if you look at, like, the Wheel of Time, uh, Westeros kind of falls into this. Like, it's literally called Westeros, even though it's not technically a West Coast. It's a whole continent. And there's the, the Witcher also does this, I think. And, yeah, it's, it's all West Coasts with the lands to the east seldom charted or developed as detailed as the European-inspired culture. So you often have stuff like, there's, you know, the kingdom, Middle-earth, and then you have some, the empire of the golden lotus or the, the, the golden dragon realms or the thousand kingdoms of Yeti, whatever. Uh, and, yeah, like in, in The Song of Ice and Fire, we can see this sort of with, uh, once you get past the Bone Mountains, that's when it starts to get really, you get like Kadath and the Winged Men and you get the, the, the Shrikes and like Lizard People and there's a shy, like it gets more and more weird and mysterious and, and crazy. And less and less people know about it the further you go into the East. Yeah, and it gets a little bit more uh, inspired by Asia. So we have um, the Jogos Nai and the Dothraki are very similar to the steppe peoples such as um, the Mongolians or the Manchus. Uh, and then you have E.T., which I, I've written one essay about E.T., and it's just one in many, many series uh, that I'm going to be doing, uh, is, is very obviously inspired by China. You have um, the Jade Sea, right? And then you have uh, people say Lang. I'm sorry. I'm sure that's the right way. Technically, George says he doesn't really care how we pronounce things, but I say Lung because that would be the Chinese way to pronounce it. But I know it's um, inspired by H.P. Lovecraft and should be Lang. Um, but anyway, there is known as the land of like 10,000 monkeys and a thousand tigers. Like these are so, so obviously, um, you know, Asian kind of representations and, and associations. Um, and my very first essay and my first video I ever made was about the monkey king and Tyrion and monkey, uh, Tyrion Lannister and monkey imagery. And that alone is, you know, um, George is inspired by these kinds of, uh, you know, um, kind of very, um, like Land the Clever, you know, kind of, uh, they're, they're tricksters. Uh, and he takes that directly from the Monkey King, who is a, a monkey trickster, um, who was then taken from Hanuman from Hindu mythology. Anyway, it's a long, long line of it. But basically, yeah. the more east you go in most fantasy, Western fantasy, and 
definitely in A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, we start getting more mysterious. And in that case, by doing that, it's more exoticized and therefore more Orientalist. And we're going to get a lot more into what exactly Orientalism is. But one of the first things that you need to know is its exoticization. It is seen as exotic and incomprehensible and different. And we're just about to talk about the other, which is a very important part of Orientalist yes. studies. Yeah, I originally had, had names for the different sections of the of the podcast, but I chose to not have them in the... But yeah, this section is technically called The Others. Not The White Walkers, but the, the, the more boring academic others. Yeah, but before we get into that, I think it's interesting that you brought up Yiti, obvious China uh, parallels there. Uh, Lang is uh, Japan, you know, it's an island, basic, like similar culture-ish, the Jade Sea, stuff like that. Uh, I just thought we'd go through like some of the other obvious parallels because George R. R. Martin is like on tape admitting that a lot of this is, is straight up taken from history. So we have uh, Westeros, a very obvious analog for medieval England. There is different waves of peoples who uh, go there and invade it. You have or conquer it. There is the children of the forest and the first men, which could be seen as the original Celtic people, the Britons, who live there. Then you have the first wave of the first men who are... I guess the first men also could kind of be seen as the Celts because the Andals I have more like the Anglo-Saxon inspiration. They came in later. Yeah, and a lot of people in the fandom technology. have talked about that the first men, we are sure, because it was so many thousands of years ago, were a mix of many different peoples who were all migrating around the same time. So they're not yeah. a monolith, for sure. Yeah, and then the Valerians are a mix because the Valerians are kind of like Valeria as a... A nation is very, very inspired by Rome. But then the conquest of Westeros takes place after Valyria has already fallen, whereas the Romans pulled out of Britain before the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. So I think the Valyrians are more closely uh, an analogue an to the Normans. You know, Aegon the Conqueror obviously being William the Conqueror, who took the seven kingdoms and made them into one. The Seven Kingdoms, of course, being a parallel to the Seven Kingdoms of England. Ooh, uh, Kent, Mercia, East Anglia, Wessex, Sussex, Essex, Northumbria. Did I nail it? I think I nailed it. I've seen the last is that, is that, is that seven? That all sounds right to me. <laughs> okay. So there were seven. It was called the Heptarchy. So yeah. there's that. And uh, what I think is interesting is that all these parallels are very, they're very obvious. So Westeros is not very far removed from actual medieval England. It's a little more simplified. There's no barons and dukes. There's just lords. But it's, you know, it's sigils. There's a king who wears a crown. There's castles and all that stuff. But as we move further into the east, it, it, the parallels become less... Uh, we, we don't find, like, these exact analogs. Obviously, the three cities in Essos are these... The, the Renaissance uh, Republic cities, like the, the Italian, the Mediterranean... City-states. Volantis, I always thought, was sort of like Byzantium in the way that it's like the remnant of the Valyrian Empire. It's a fairly big city. And we, there's Carth, where there's, you know, there's, there's animal-wise, there's camels, elephants. This is sort of other elements of, of Orientalism. And then there are, in Astapor, for example, it's mentioned that the women veil their faces, which is another Middle Eastern thing. Pyramids, of course, uh, there's Gehazada and could, I, I guess, be kind of seen as maybe like a Nile type situation and marine and are sort of like the Egyptian because another, another very old, uh, 
culture, like the Valerians. So you got the Giscari are the Egyptians and the Valerians are the Romans, stuff like that. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, when we go really far east, that's when we get into the weird territory with the flying people and the blood red sea and lizard people and all that stuff. So <laughs> we'll talk more about that. But yeah, so to get into the what it, what it, what like what we mean about when we say Orientalism in A Song of Ice and Fire, I have a quote here from Rachel Hartnett who sees four ways that Orientalism is seen in A Song of Ice and Fire. And these are, these are complicated words, but synchronic essentialism, dehumanization, hypersexualization, and infantilization. So synchronic essentialism means a conflation of multiple ethnicities and cultures into one. So a, a homogenization. Dehumanization, I think, is pretty self-explanatory. Then there's a hypersexualization, obviously portraying the Orient, or in our case, Essos, as a sexually submissive and permissive. And then infantilization is dear, like this paternalistic idea that the, the associate people are childlike, like that. Yeah, and I would also actually um, add to that list uh, violent, right? The, uh, the Rathraki are seen as violent, and it's very common Orientalist trope. Uh, to see the East as backward and more violent than the West, which is something we'll talk a little bit about in the case of the Dothraki. And we're going to argue that, you know, um, Westerosi knights are not, um, are not any less violent and, in fact, uh, commit a lot of war crimes similar to the Dothraki, and yet that is excused. But we'll get to that later. Let me just do, like, okay. crash course on Orientalism. Where does yes. this come from? So there's a scholar, uh, the main guy you want to go to is Edward Said, and that's S-A-I-D, like I said something, but you pronounce it as Said. And his seminal work is literally called Orientalism from 1978. And so that's where most scholars begin their or study of Orientalis Orientalism from, so they kind of extend beyond this work, right? And he mostly focuses on the Middle East, but a part of that, he talks about how um, there is uh, what, uh, what um, Archmaester Buzzkill had just mentioned about this uh, idea of grouping, homogenizing people, right? He writes how Orientalism, this, his work, could be applied to the Middle East, Northern Africa, and Central and East Asia because an Orientalist trope itself is to group all of these people together. So it creates what, what Said calls an imagined geography, which means you kind of imagine the East in a certain way according to certain tropes, right? So you have this conception of the East in your head, and it's all kind of the same. And this turns them into the Great Other with a capital O and not with an S, not the White Walkers, like, like we were saying, right? So it creates these big, um, the Great Other, who, which are exoticized, hypersexualized, seen as violent, and seen as backward, right? Seen as not having this organized society that the West has, and also being seen not as modern, right? The West has all of this great science and technology, whereas the East has this like superstitious Eastern medicine, right? So discounting um, the kinds of, uh, you know, and, and we all, know, I mean, hopefully we're all aware that so many important inventions came from the Middle East and East Asia, right? We've got the compass and gunpowder from China and anything with all in front of it, alcohol and alchemy and algebra, right? That all came from the Middle East. Um, so there, it's discounting the, uh, the, the inventions that have come out of the Middle East and East Asia. So there's that. And I also recommend Anne Anmin Chung's 2019 book called Ornamentalism, 
kind of riffing off of Orientalism, which looks at how Chinese women are hypersexualized, uh, which is a very, very, like we've been saying, large part of it. You can see this with lease, right? The pleasure houses of lease, right? And the, the women of lease are beautiful and easy to get with, right? So this kind of over-sexualization. We have the, the one free city where you bear your breast. I'm sorry, I'm totally blanking Karth. on the name. Karth. Yeah, so it's Karth that does that. Um, so, and I do want to just take one note. And so that's basically a cra- your crash course on, ori- on Orientalism. And we're going to kind of sh- apply this to George uh, George's work throughout this, this episode. But I did just want to say, some people in the fandom are uncomfortable with reading contemporary issues into the, into the series. But George R. R. Martin was a Vietnam War protester, and he's always been politically active. Check out his blog, not a blog. He posts regularly about his political views. And so I want to quote from um, Shiloh Carroll, a wonderful person in the fandom. Please follow her on Twitter. Her last name is C-O or C-A-R-R-O-L-L, Shiloh Carroll. She wrote a book. She is a scholar of uh, medievalism, and she wrote a book about medievalism in A Song of Ice and Fire. So now I'm quoting her directly. A Song of Ice and Fire examines contemporary concerns or anxieties while placing them in a far distant past, allowing the reader to consider them at a distance. And this is on page seven of her 2018 book. So she's arguing, and I agree, that George R. R. Martin is obviously expressing contemporary anxieties and concerns within his series. Um, you can't ignore them. That's totally fine. But uh, I think that a lot of really great analysis in the fandom comes out of realizing these kinds of contemporary things. So when we're talking about Orientalism, and, you know, Orientalism isn't... Um, a new, you know, necessarily gone. It's still here and it's still actively being dealt with. You know, Asiatic peoples and people from the Middle East are still being stereotyped to this day. So I think it's an important thing to look at. And there was Orientalism all over and it's just all over time. And it just, you know, in 1978 is when, you know, Saeed's important work came out. Um, So just, just as many things now are recognized in the contemporary, that doesn't mean that they never were happening before is what I'm saying. Yes. And this brings me to another point that I have in my notes here, which is that you did, I mentioned this uh, in the introduction, that you did a stream with Lothar Links on Orientalism and colonialism in his Dark Materials. And in that stream, you said that the world of his Dark Materials is kind of similar to the real world. Like, it's obviously inspired by it, but it's also kind of different. And this made me ask the question, uh, Westeros is obviously completely made up, even though we just talked about how there's obvious like analogs, but it's not like his dark materials where it's like an alternate version of Earth. So some people might be asking themselves, how can a, a fantasy story be Orientalist if all the cultures are made up by the author? How can an author misrepresent cultures that they came up with? So, and I would, yes. Uh, Oh, you have an answer to that written down. Sorry, (laughs) go for it. (laughs) I I, I asked a question. I shouldn't be surprised that there's an answer. Yeah, uh, don't don't give me a Google Doc because I will I will just take notes and uh, I already have my answers ready. Yeah, um, I I appreciate you correcting all the spelling mistakes. (laughs) It's it's I I was a trained editor and so I. Yeah. I, I'm a little crazy about being like, ah, I need to change this or that, you know, but no problem. A- anyone in the fandom needs editing, I'm your girl. Um, yeah, so this is this is a great question. Um, and I think 
the main thing to look at, and I, I obviously talk about this with Lowe in the context of his dark material, so I'm going to kind of just apply this to A Song of Ice and Fire, because that's why we're all here, right? So to kind of say that, oh, I can kind of think up this, um, let's, Dothraki, let's take them, you know, for example. I'm just going to think up this people. Okay, well, they ride on horses, and um, they have sex publicly, and it's all about, you know, there are no heredit hereditary um offices you just kind of fight and whoever wins gets it you know all of these things well you can't just say that george made that up out of nowhere i mean look at how the mongolians uh had a tribal system that was based on strength and not on who your father was look at how they ride horses and look at how especially during the time of genghis khan um sexual assault as a kind of uh domination during wartime you know was a big part of it and so i think it is you know, nothing new under the sun. I think it is actually impossible to completely make up a society that has not, doesn't have any elements at all from any society over the, you know, the time of human history. I'm not saying people are not, uh, especially George, I'm not saying that he's not imaginative. He absolutely is. But at the same time, he's going to, everyone who's writing is going to recreate Orientalist tendencies about a culture that they don't know enough about, right? He just, he doesn't, right? We look at E.T., if you look at the world book and you go to the section on uh, Lang and E.T., and it's like, here's a d depiction of an Etish man, a depiction of a lungy woman. The lungy woman looks kind of like, uh, she's very, has a very skimpy outfit on. She kind of looks Egyptian. And I swear, the Etish man looks like a Chinese guy from the Song Dynasty. If you just type in Song Dynasty actually, Chinese guy. I actually think I have I have that book here, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's it, the Chinese guy. Yeah, and, and so the Etish man looks exactly like a Chinese guy. So when he was consulting with the, the um, artists, right, and he was telling them what he wanted them to look like, he obviously was thinking about these um, Eastern cultures because that is what was produced on the page. So my main argument here is that it is impossible to say that you have completely created a new culture with no elements of any culture in the world over the period of, uh, the, you know, the long span of human history. I think it is impossible. I think that we are naturally influenced by what we've learned over the years. And because of that, we also will have these Orientalist tendencies, right? If you notice, the lungy woman is like barely has any clothes on. I mean, <laughs> there we go. Yep. So look at that. His hat is exactly like medieval Chinese hat. I'm I, th I think he has a dragon insignia somewhere. His armor, it's all very Chinese, right? So there, yep, there's a dragon you know, there. if he completely made up a different culture that w an ET is not supposed to be China, then why does that guy look exactly like a historical Chinese man? So that's basically what, where I'm coming from when I, when I make this yes. argument that, um, that, Fantasy is going to reproduce Orientalist and colonialist tendencies just by definition of it being written by a Western author. I write, I'm currently writing fantasy. I'm attempting to write a fantasy novel. And oh, yeah, I didn't know that. there's no way that there are no Orientalist tendencies in there. It's just not possible. Yeah. Actually, a slightly embarrassing anecdote. Uh, I could, I could tell <laughs> you, I also attempted to write my fair share of fantasy books. And in one of the stories I came up with, I thought, okay, I need a villain. How about a secret organization? Okay, so there's this uh, there's this ancient empire, right? And there was a religious minority there, and they were hunted and persecuted, and they have magical powers. So after they 
they were displaced, they fled to another continent where they started to uh, use their, their magical abilities to gain a lot of material wealth. And they sort of became a very powerful merchant class who was secretly plotting to overthrow or take control of the government. And they also wear pointed hats. And I, 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 I like went back to that. And I thought, oh, I just, I just literally created an anti-Semite's idea of a Jewish person. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oof. And, yeah. and, and then, at that yeah. point, like, like pointy hats. And at that point, it's like, okay, can I, like, how do I do that? What do I do now? Like, can I leave this, this group of people who are a religious, persecuted, displaced minority who are trying to take control of the government by controlling the economy? Yeah. Not like, it, not, that's not a big great. oof. Yeah, that's like that's, that's like yeah. goblins from Lord from Harry Potter level weird. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know if you want if you want a Westerosi example, right? Uh, and we, yeah. you know, it would be a Western example and not an Orientalist example. Um, and obviously, and I also want to pause for one second and say I know that Oriental is not the word that we're supposed to use, and it's not a great word. Asian is what I say normally. I'm talking about Orientalism which is in itself a negative term for these kinds of Orientalist views about the East. So I'm not just throwing that term around not knowing that it's the wrong term. I know this is not, you know, this is not how we talk about Asiatic peoples. Um, yeah. But I'm saying that using the term Orientalism and Orientalist is specifically a criticism term for people that do have these kinds of um, uh, conceptions about yeah. this. But so looking at Westeros, right, George has said very clearly that the Church of the Seven is basically the Catholic Church. So he is very straightforward about kind of the parallels, but then I kind of find it a little weird that he's more hesitant to talk about the SOC parallels, I think because he does not want to be criticized as, as reproducing Orientalist tropes. But I think he should lean into it and say, yeah, this is how the Westerosi see the East, right? It's weird, it's exoticized, it's hypersexualized, and lean into it as a criticism of our real world. Rather than just going, oh, don't don't call me Orientalist, you know. So yeah, I think that that we can square our love for the series and these Orientalist tropes by saying, look, he's reproducing these tropes as a way to show how the Western society, especially during the Middle Ages, exoticized the East. Yeah, and I think I mean I think there's definitely uh, while we we are criticizing him, obviously. But there is definitely, you, know, you can tell that George R. Martin is aware of post-colonialism post and he's not a, clearly not a racist, uh, you know, at least not a blatant one. And a lot of what's in the books, and we'll talk about this later, is a critique of like he, there are a lot of passages where he highlights this hypocrisy that, that the Westerosi have about the cultures of Esos. Unfortunately, there is, there are, he still taps into some of these uh, stereotypes while doing it. Like, I do think it's a good point where you say that, of course, we have to differentiate between, for example, in a fi fire and blood. If, if the guy who writes fire and blood, I mean, it's George R. R. Martin, but in universe, it's Arch Archmaster Gildane who technically wrote it. So if Archmaster Gildane says something fucked up about E.T. or some, or a shy, we can say, okay, but he's an old white guy from Westeros who writes about this. And then George can use that. But in order to criticize the Orientalist viewpoint, they have to be proven false to some extent. And that's something that doesn't happen that often because a lot of, like, for example, Karth that you brought up earlier is an actually hypersexualized culture. It's not like 
Danny thinks, oh, Karth, where they run around naked in the street and everyone has sex with each other. And then she gets there and it's like, oh, it just turns out that maybe they are way more accepting of sex work as a profession. Or they, they have less like a religion that is less suppressive when it comes to sexual things. But it's not like they're just out banging every, each other in the street. But the problem is that they kind of are like that. So it's not a misconception on the Westerosi's part. And that's where the issues come in. Yeah, but yeah uh, I think that's uh, yeah. an important point. And when we go to Dorne, right, that's kind of the, the, uh, the uh, most people in the other, in the Six Kingdoms, right, see Dorne as uh, basically with a lot of Orientalist tropes. But then we have Ario Hota there and we have Ari Zoghart and then we have um, Ariane Martel. And we see that actually it is just a more sexually open society that likes spicy food and, and you know, uh, and women are able to fight and, you know, that, that it's just a more, it's a different, more open society. And a lot of our, the Orientalist tropes we hear about Dorne in the early books are then overturned in the later books. But we do not get this with Essos, which is, I think, is a really important point that we're, we're trying yes. to make here. Yeah. 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 Uh, then I have another quote, quote here from Man and Ruling. Uh, they say that, there are economic and societal structures that govern our real world. Secondary worlds might replicate these structures and thereby give the image that even societies with a completely different history in its broadest sense compared to the ones in our world are governed according to the same constructs. This is, I think, the boiled down version of the point that we've try been trying to make for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And, and said more concisely and, uh, and, uh, and scholarly <laughs> than we could. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's, the reason, that's the reason why they write books and we do internet <laughs> live streams. Yeah. Okay, then there's, uh, you know, to have some other quotes here, I, uh, Helen Young says, fantasy habitually constructs the self through whiteness and otherness through an array of racist stereotypes. This is when, kind of refers to earlier when we were talking about the fantasy genre's problem in general about, well, with, uh, with racism and stuff. And it's uh, true to some extent, like we'll get into this idea of the self and the other. And the self is very much constructed to be white in A Song of Ice and Fire. I wouldn't say that the uh, that the other is almost like an array of racist stereotypes, not perhaps as problematic as, for example, in The Lord of the Rings, but it is definitely there. Um, then, yeah, there's uh, Man and Ruling has some other things to say. He defines this other that you've talked about, the great other that Melisandre really doesn't, doesn't like. Uh, <laughs> a different great other, but yeah. He says others are individuals who are excluded from society and its power structures. They are the other to the idealized self that gains power in society. It matters who has been given the voice and the agency to narrate their own development. And this, I think, is a very, very important point. Who has been given the voice to narrate their own development? They can, so the others, others, they can only ever be perceived through the European self's perspective. And they are presented or it appears they are, appear to be incapable of expressing themselves themselves and this is uh, this is a problem in a song of ice and fire i think because all the pov characters are white and they are also almost exclusively from westeros except for melisandre who has like two chapters and Ariahota, who's barely even a character yeah, and Violent Messiah made this point in the chat, uh, and we were just getting to it, VM, so you were right there, right on the same wavelengths, we were just getting to this point, that maybe these tropes would be overturned if we had an SOC POV. Now, there could be many reasons that we don't. One could be that they might know a little bit more about this mysterious magical land, and we're going to learn about the magic, and George doesn't want that. 
Um, two, I think another reason is that he wants us to see a lot of these through Danny's POV, but we don't really get the pushback that we would have from, for example, Amir and E's perspective. So we get the green grace coming in and saying, you will only ever be seen as a conqueror. You will never be seen as a Miranese queen. And, you know, Zarozo and Doxos also does a little bit of pushback. But if we were to get an SOC POV, they would be thinking a lot more pushing back against Danny, uh, much less than what they would say to her in person, because that's, that's dangerous. I mean, she's the dragon queen, right? So I think that if we had an SOC POV, we would get a lot more criticisms of Danny that perhaps, uh, I'm not sure why, but perhaps George is, is not really wanting there until we get to Westeros and all of a sudden we get all these Westerosi POV that are then saying all the thing, same things that the SOC would say. Because think about it. The SOC are seeing her as an outsider who doesn't belong to be there. The Westerosi are going to see her exactly the same way because she's been in Essos this whole time. Yes. And, I mean, obviously, you know, George R. Martin, he introduces Melisandre as a POV character who is someone who has experienced the practice of slavery as someone who is actually from Essos, not someone who's trying to get in there from an outside perspective and judging the practice as someone who, who doesn't come from a culture that practices it or is affected by it. And and so, uh, yeah, I think uh, Violent Messiah in the chat makes a good point that perhaps like a Grey Worm or a Missandei POV could have been useful, or even maybe not Zarazo and Daxus, because he doesn't like factor into the, the plot as a whole, just Danny's specific portion. But yeah, it is interesting that we, we see so much of Essos, but it's all through the eyes of Tyrion, Sir Barristan, Daenerys. And the one person we do have who, who's from, is it Kohor or Norvos? Arya Hosa. He's from Norvos, I believe. Norvos. And, we do, and they, they're also white, we should say. Like people, he was black in the show, but they, uh, Norvos is like the same altitude as I don't know, Wickenden or King's Landing or something. So it's. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it's uh, Summer Islanders are mostly the people of color in yes. on Planetos. I love to say Planetos. I Planetos. do that same thing. And George just said they just call it the world because it's their world. I'm like, yeah, but I it's mean, Planetos. It's always slightly more dumb than Westeros and Essos and Sothorios. So, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, ethnicity-wise, we obviously have. Um, I hate to say Asian-looking, but you know, like Yt and Lang, obviously. They have they have the the the, the eye shape and similar like attributes the, associated with the physical with features. And, and physical I, features. If yeah. I could just make a point too, you made an excellent point. Then this is a huge part of of um, of colonial and post colonial studies. This is the idea of the European self that tells us about the Asian other. And I make uh, I talk a lot about this in my essay and video about Orientalism and his dark materials, which is that. We get the uh, these kinds of far off lands. In this case, the Tartars. We see them through the perspective of a white European man, and this is very repre much representative of our own world, right? We have, for example, movies like The Last Samurai, where we're not. We do obviously Ugh. have some important Ugh. Japanese characters, but <laughs> the main character is a white guy, right? Yeah. And you have things like Dances Seven Years in wolves. Tibet. Seven Years in Tibet, which I believe is either written by a German or an Austrian man, and I'm so sorry I can never remember. It's I, think, I, I don't know. It's Brad Pitt doing a horrible accent. I think it's German. But the original man did actually go to Tibet and did meet yeah, yeah, the yeah, Dalai yeah. Lama and all of this. So a lot of Westerners, this was in the 1950s is when his book came out, a lot of Westerners learned about Tibet through that, and that's 
and Marco Polo's writings. That's how we learned about China and the Yuan Dynasty. That would have been when the Mongolians took over China. We're always seeing it through this Western filter, right? We're always seeing it through that, that lens of specifically white men. You know, I'm into feminist analysis, Archbaster Buzzkill, so I'm always, always going to point out. We're always in male, I know. white male that. perspectives <laughs> of, of these um, cultures, which is another reason, I think, that they tend to be more hypersexualized because men be horny. <laughs> yes, and we should also say that because we have John Webster, film expert, in the chat right now, our resident white man. And he <laughs> and my like, fellow that, host over at John Webster fellow film? host of John Webster film, who just did an interview with uh, Doug Adams, who wrote the music, the book, the music of the Lord of the Rings movie, which is very good, which you should all watch. It was retweeted. <laughs> oh my god, it was retweeted by Sir Ian McKellen himself, which means it must be good. So you should all watch it. Also, I would like to reassure John that yeah, you can like movies like the last, maybe not the last Samurai, because that, that movie is terrible. But Dances with Wolves, it is a good movie. Uh, you can acknowledge that it's problematic that the only movies we ever get about Native Americans are the ones where it's a white guy who, like, interacts with them and tries to save them. It would be nice to have just, you know, have one where there's no white people in it. Just have a movie set, tell a Native American story, Native American main characters, no white people have to chime in. And maybe the villains could be white, I don't know. But just leave yeah. them out. Get them out of there. Get them out of there. <laughs> Yes. But Dances, Dances with Wolves is, is I, th it's, I like it. It's a good I like movie. it. I like that it's, movie. It's, it, and it I'm not saying that you to, can't yeah. like something. That is not why I'm here. I'm not here to sit on my high horse and say, I study Chinese literature so I can tell you not to watch The Last Samurai. No, that's not what I'm saying. Also, Last Samurai is Japanese before anyone asks me. I know. Um, trust me. I know. <laughs> um, but what I'm saying is that as long as you go in knowing what these stereotypes are like and what this is all about, then you are much more woke than, honestly, they think these audiences are going to be. They want you to just sit there and passively accept these Orientalist tropes as yeah. real. And that is just not the case. I've been to China and, like, over half the stuff I heard about China was wrong. And some of it was right, but it was nuanced, right? So they talked about, oh, China, you go there and, like, you, you shit in a hole all the time. Yeah, there were a couple of squatty potties, but they also had plenty of you know, bidets and, and so-called Western-style toilets. So this, like, these kinds of blanket generalizations about Asian and Middle Eastern and North African cultures, it is just, it, as long as you recognize what is happening, then you can actually be a good person in this society, especially a white person who comes from a colonial, someone who has basically benefited from colonialism. This doesn't mean we just throw our hands and give up and say, well, you know, what can I do? No, you can recognize you know, your part in a post-colonial world. Yes, exactly. And thank you, you for can still like to my TED talk. Dances <laughs> Yes. And thank you for your comment, Mr. John Webster, from the excellent podcast John Webster Film, which uh, will do the Lord of the Rings movies yes, for the next three so. weeks, John I believe. John and I are talking about Colette tomorrow. So we, do sa we stream Saturdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And then after that, for three weeks, I, I believe John can correct me if I'm wrong, but we're going to move it up to 5 p.m. Eastern because we have a couple of people that we're going to be streaming from uh, Europe. We're going to 5 p.m. Eastern. We're going to do all three Lord of the Rings movies. So we're going to do, of course, like the first first Saturday going to be The Fellowship and then second Saturday, Twin, Twin Towers and so on and so on. So we're going to do all three of them. It's going to be very exciting. So John Webster Film, I'm a, he so graciously asked me to be his co-host and I'm having a great time over there. Okay, done with plug. Back to Orientalism. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, I have a point. Can I remember it? Yes, um, which is we're talking about you know, fantasy literature, European style, people, white people are often the only lens through which readers can experience the world, which kind of makes sense if you're writing for a 
generally an English-speaking white audience the way George R. R. Martin does. Obviously, now his books are so popular that they're read all over the world. Um, but I think we should recognize that there are some attempts in the books by him to let us know that there are these different perspectives. Not only does he have characters who give pushback to primarily the Daenerys, but he also has a lot of SOC characters express uh, their confusion about Westerosi customs. Uh, there are many instances where Sarozo and Daxos and other guys say, that, oh, Westerosi, you're, you're so you know, uncivilized and you're so weird and strange. But when I first read the books, I always felt like, and this says probably more about me than about the books, I was like, this, that's not true. Like These Asosi clearly have a, a warped understanding of Westeros, but I never really felt about that when, like, when the Westerosis made some weird, like, bigoted statements about the associates. So that's probably just my my inner uh, biases coming through. But obviously, on the second reread, that's different. But yeah, he he does try to yeah. introduce those counter perspectives. He just never never goes all the way and makes a POV character. And I also kind of feel like if you're gonna make a POV solely for the purpose of having like your token non-white character so you you can be like ah, it's not racist there's that one guy yes. there's yeah. there's Cho Chang from ET who who hates all the Westerosi <laughs> characters and uh, violent messiah <laughs> I wash um, my hands I, and I really like violent messiah's comment which is that you know it's interesting how SOC's Westeros is a backwater and if I were to put on my Chinese scholar hat I mean isn't scholar of Chinese obviously I'm white but what I'm saying scholar of Chinese studies scholar I would say that for a long time, the Empire of China saw the West as a backwater because, uh, I don't know, China <laughs> invented paper and invented block printing, which, uh, you know, is kind of like the, um, the, uh, ancestor of, of typeface printing, what we have now. Um, you know, uh, the crossbow, like I said earlier, gunpowder and the compass and, um, yeah, a lots of, uh, Ice lots cream of things. And, and so, pasta? Sorry, what? Ice cream and pasta. Yes, lots, lots of food too. So, so my main thing is what I'm trying to say is that the, especially China, which has this long, long history and has long established itself as an important empire, looks at the West and sees us as a baby. Like we're just getting started. So I see Essos as the same thing, looking at Westeros. I also see Essos looking to Westeros and saying, how dare you judge us about slavery? You have thraldom, right? And the Iron Islands. You also have a lot of peasants yes. who are taken advantage of by the lords when they play their Game of Thrones, uh, you know, all the time. So it, obviously they're not owned, and I want to be very clear, slavery is very different from being a, a very poor peasant. But look at what's happening in the Riverlands in, in the series, right? And how the people are being hurt um, by the, you know, is, is Westeros really better to their lower classes, basically, is kind of what I'm asking. Yeah, and th that's another... Another case of those of there being like two levels of this type of uh, can't think of the word, but yeah. So we have characters who bring this up. I think I think it might be Zarazo and Daxos who brings up the thraldom argument, but it's also something that I think George R. R. Martin invites the readers to think about. Like, how is thraldom better than you know slavery? And obviously, it is slightly better because at least if you're born the, the the child of a thrall, you're not automatically also a thrall. But at what point is it just is it just you know slavery with extra steps? Uh, so, but yeah, this is these are stuff. So there's definitely some nuance in the books, and, and Martin obviously tries to uh, tries to present a, a new 
Sorry, I got distracted by the chat. Yeah. No, nuance. not at all. Yeah, I Something, did, I did something nuance. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I did want to also give a shout out to Joe Magician. He had a really great stream. Yes, that's what I was going to do. Yeah. Alicia Kingston about um, Ario Hotai. And they've done, they've, they gave him the most amount of, of um, you know, good, solid analysis in time than I've ever seen uh, in the, um, hello, Anna. Good to see you. Um, yeah, so they, they, Alicia Kingston, um, who was on Joe Magician's channel, they did probably the best version of, of a, you know, a, a video about Ario Hotel that I've seen. And they actually made me go, hey, he's, he's actually a thought out character. But when you read it, that is not at all how it feels. But there are some great people in the fandom that have worked on the analysis of these characters that makes them a lot more nuanced. But on the page, you, you really got to dig. Yeah, it's reading Ario Hotel to me always felt like, George clearly needs someone to witness all this Martell shenanigans, but it can't be Doran because he knows too much. And it can't be Ariane. I mean, it's also Ariane, but she's not privy to everything. And so, hmm, what am I going to do? Uh, a guard, like a personal guard. Okay. Got to give an interesting backstory. Uh, he's from somewhere. And so it's, but he never like, he is very much one of those like second tier characters. He's down there with like Aaron Demper and, uh, uh, some other like, like Melisandre, who only has one chapter, is sort of like the bottom of the barrel <laughs> when it comes to POV characters. Um, but yeah, I mean, he is there, and we should appreciate that. And the stream is definitely very good, and I encourage everyone to watch. And and just, it. I'm sorry, I know we're like still on, like barely halfway through what we want to talk about. <laughs> we're fine. still going to talk about Danny, guys. I swear, the whole next half of this episode is going to be. About oh yeah, it's about it's supposed she's to be my about favorite Mary. POV and my favorite character. So trust me, I have a lot of say to say, but. Um, I do want to say, you just talked about Melisandre, and I've always found that quote by George interesting that she's the most misunderstood POV, and it wasn't until working on the notes for this episode that I thought, what if he's he's making a general kind of statement about SOC overall being more misunderstood than our Westerosi POVs? So I don't know, there might be something there, but that just kind of came to me. Yeah. I mean, she's certainly very, very vilified. A lot of people really hate her, and I think what he's mainly talking about is that as far as she's concerned, she's convinced that the world is facing like the apocalypse and she's trying to fix it. So and I think that's where he comes in. And I think part of that is understanding her culture and her religion and her worldview. And Melisandre has a very, very, very binary view of the world. She says a man is either good or evil. He cannot be both. A half rotten onion is a rotten onion. God, you know, God made us man and woman and that's it, and we and there's good and evil, light and darkness, all that stuff. So, also is the great other, and then there's Relore, all that stuff. But Melisandre, you know, make a whole, whole stream about Melisandre. So, okay, let's see. We talked about Orient, Orientalism, all that stuff. Now let's maybe get, get finally get to Daenerys, which is supposed to be the point of of the stream. So, why Daenerys? I said in the introduction, a lot of people have their problems with her character. There's the white savior allegation or the very often made argument. She is obviously white. She's what so she we're going to talk about whether she's actually, she actually is can be considered Westerosian or Westerosi, I should say. And she conquers all these different cultures. She interacts. She, I think she's the POV that interacts with the most different cultures. I think that's fair to say. She she interacts yeah, with Yeah, I I would say so Karth. and we see most of Essos through her. 
Yes, most um, of it. Until, until Dance with Dragons, she's our only uh, POV character who yeah. shows us these in the Dothraki, Karth, Slavers Bay, the, the Lazarene, uh, and all these, uh, the Pentos, and all these other places. Um, and I did just want to say, when we're talking about colonization, it's really important. A lot of, uh, I was talking about Danny as a colonizer in one of my live streams, and someone had commented and said, oh, colonization is when one nation tries to conquer another people's or nation. And um, that's not quite correct. It's basically uh, a, it can be just one conqueror trying to conquer another uh, people. So we have Aegon the Conqueror. He colonized Westeros. That is correct way to say. So Danny the Conqueror, right, is doing the same thing in, in the vein of her ancestor. So we shouldn't think of colonization and colonialism as very strict nation take over other nation. Because then we're leaving out a lot of colonial tendencies, which Danny expresses in the story. Yes, I think that's a good point. But it's also an important thing to remember that I think most people, when they hear Orientalism, they think of uh, 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 colonialism. I mean, they think of colonies as parts of a of a a nation that are primarily used for resource exploitation. So you have a mother nation. And they colonize other cultures. And these colonies primarily function to get resources back into the, the, the mainland, the, you know, the, the home state. And this is certainly true. But I think you can have the, 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 the conquest and the resource exploitation and, and sort of enforcing new cultural norms onto a, 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 onto a, a culture without necessarily having this. Obviously, Daenerys doesn't have a, a home a home country per se. She's Valyrian. Valyria's been gone forever. She's Wester She's the queen of Westeros, but she's never really been there or lived there. But she still has this conquest. The, the, one of the primary goals of this conquest is to allocate resources for her conquest of Westeros. And this, I th in this, I think she's different from Aegon the Conqueror because Aegon the Conqueror had lost his homeland. He was chilling on Dragonstone. And he saw Westeros, and it was and he, oh, it's you know it's plentiful. There's gold in the hills and wheat in the fields. But he didn't steal their wheat and gold. He just conquered it and ruled it by himself. But he made the colony his new his new mo mother his new motherland. And he and with his two wives, don't forget with his the two wives. That made that yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I was he, just gonna say, don't he, forget my Visenya over there. Rule. Okay, I, I'm oh, sorry, but I'm I'm for Visenya. like badass female conquerors. I know I, I should also be, hate I Aegon. should be just as critical of them as the men, but I love Visenya. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, it's also important that Aegon didn't impose really any cultural practices on Westeros. He let them keep I all mean, their wife he, beating he rules. He did it when it came to his family. He wanted to yes. still continue the incestuous uh, marriages, yeah, but yeah, no, yeah, yeah. he did not impose that. Then you're, you're right um, in that he did not impose that on the people of Westeros. He didn't force other people to marry their siblings, and he also he he, he got a banner and he built a castle. He didn't build a, a Valyrian stronghold thing. He didn't rule from Dragonstone. He built his new uh, castle. He presumably changed his last name or at least altered it because Targaryen doesn't sound very Valyrian to me. So I assume it's like an, an anglicized or Westerosianized version. Of, I, I'm uh, his not last sure. I, th I think it's pretty pretty much from there. But what I find interesting is that according to the World Book, the Targaryens were kind of not. They weren't one of the strongest of the dragon riding families. Uh, and yeah. I, I think one thing that is really important to talk about is we were kind of. Uh, and I'm sorry, I am skipping ahead a little bit in our notes, but we were talking about 
this idea of uh, imposing yourself on uh, the, the colonized or imposing onto the colonized. I think that Danny imposing an anti-slavery stance is not so one-to-one. She just goes, no slavery, and then there's no slavery, right? Don't we see an example in Marine uh, where there is a man who wants to sell himself back into slavery and she allows it? So it's she's not, she is kind of imposing, but she is also I'm negotiating a little bit with her morals. Yes, there's also the, the fighting pits, which she yeah. initially forbids and is very, uh, she's very committed to having them remain closed until she eventually gives in and, and lets them return because she realizes that they're an important cultural aspect. Yeah, but we'll get to the marine stuff. At first, we should talk about um, Daenerys with the Dothraki because those are the first alien culture, the first culture that isn't a clear... Because Westeros is very intuitive, you know, as a, re- as a Western person reading it, it's like, yeah, this is, I know this, this is castles, knights, kings, lords, king, all that stuff. But then you go to the Dothraki and you need a, a bit more of an introduction to their, how they function and what kind of a culture they are. And Daenerys is sort of the window and she, 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 she starts out not as a, a colonizer or anything like that. She's, her, her being sold off to, to Khal Drogo to be married is much more, uh, something that happens to a lot of colonized people. So she starts out very much in a position where she's the exploited one. So her brother and uh, Illyrio, they see her as a resource that they can use. Viserys sees her as a tool to gain an army for his conquest of Westeros, which is a very uh, colonialist mindset. It's this idea that trading human beings and disregarding their dignity and just using them as a tool for your own gain. So she's got also the, 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 the Dothraki, and it's with the Dothraki where we see these first uh, instances of Orientalism that we talked about. They're very sexualized. They um very violent, like her wedding. They, Illyrio says uh, Dothraki wedding without at least three deaths is a dull affair, which is a hilarious line. But it's also like, it's a weird... Yeah, there's a quote from the books here that says, uh, this is during the wedding, the warriors, the warriors were watching too. One of them finally stepped into the circle, grabbed a dancer by the arm, pushed her down to the ground, and mounted her right there as a stallion mounts a mare. Illyrio ha- had told her that might happen. The Dothraki mate like the animals in their herds. There is no privacy in a Kalasar, and they do not understand sin or shame as we do. And I think it's interesting that Illyrio says as we do, because obviously Daenerys and Illyrio come from very different cultural backgrounds. Technically, even though, again, Daenerys has never really lived in Westeros and she grew up in, in the free cities. But this idea that they mate like the animals in their herds is a, a prime example of the, this Orientalist dehumanization, dehumanization. or anim- animalization of yeah. these cultures. You know, they have sex like, like, like the animals and in public and all that stuff. No shame. Which isn't like, it's not a reprehensible thing. Like, that's fine. Like, you can have a culture where you have sex in public. But it's the way that it's written. and and, But then also, it's Illyrio who says they mate like the animals in their herds. It's not George R. R. Martin who says they had sex like horses. So there's, again, that that extra level where it's Illyrio, who's obviously a bigot <laughs> to some extent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously, as a feminist, I just want to uh, note that uh, there is zero consent. She was just dancing and he comes in and he forces himself onto her. And, yes. uh, you know... I want to also recognize that there are many examples in Westeros of rape where there is lack of consent. So 
her kind of um, realizing her, she herself will go on to be raped by uh, Khal Drogo in their, their first night of, of forced marriage. Um, but I also want to note that there's, there are plenty of examples of sexual assault in Westeros, but they would not say that that man was like an animal, right? And yet the Dothraki, yeah. when they do the same thing, is like an animal. Yes, also, like, Westerosi sexual assault is a lot more... Uh... Subtle is a, is a bad word to use, but you know when we have like similar situations in Westeros where there's feasts or weddings, and you have like the, the lords being gropy and they touch the the serving women. This is something that happens all the time, but we never really get a, a scene where they just straight up grab a servant and rape her, unless no no that, that actually does happen. And uh, when Euron takes takes the Shield Islands, the 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 Iron, I mean the Ironborn are on a whole other level of yikes. Anyway, like. There. Yeah, and you also have the um, the Night's Watch uh, deserters who had killed uh, Lord Commander Mormont and then went on to uh, sexually assault Craster's daughters. I will not use the term wives because yeah. he forced them. No, yes. I'm not using that term for what happens to them. So, His yeah. uh, sex slaves is yeah, probably a slaves. good term, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, so, again, yeah, the, the, the way that Othraka described... Very, very, very violent. Jeez, this is... I'm German. These are hard words. Very... (laughs) Uh, Brutal people. There we go. Brutal people. Uh, We we get the first introduction to them. Actually, it's not the first introduction to them. The first introduction to them is in Karl Drogo's mans, where they're all dressed up, and it's very... You can tell the Dothraki, they have sort of these, like... Karl Drogo, he can do both. When they're in his mans, in Pentos, he's wearing, you know... I should say normal robes, but like robes that don't, he's not half naked the way that he's most of the time when he's comfortable. And it's, it's a man's, it's a familiar setting for Daenerys. But then as soon as we get out of the city and they embrace their own cultural norms and they have the, vet, the wedding according to their own practices, it's immediately murder, rape, and like the first <laughs> three pages of the chapter. And that does create a certain subconscious bias towards their culture, which George R. Martin does attempt to subvert as Daenerys becomes more integrated with the Dothraki. Yeah, and I also do want to say this uh, this kind of suspicion of transient people is definitely a reflection of our own world. Uh, there, There is a favor in what, let's, we'll just keep it in Aswath, right? In, uh, in Westeros and in the free cities, this idea of staying in one place is is considered uh, good, and you own property or you work the land as a tenant farmer. But then to be someone moving around with a horse, there must be something wrong with you. You must be up to something. The suspicion of people that uh, migrate is very much a part an Orientalist trope. And yes, that's a great uh, comment, um, Anna. Elia was obviously uh, oh the yeah. mountain is a prime example of a Westerosi that does the pretty much the exact same thing as the Dothraki. And yes. yet it is looked over, swept under the rug. This is true. And Lady Leaf also makes a good point saying that the comparison to non-human animals was not related to the fact that it was rape, but to the fact that it was in public. It so no one has an, an no one has an issue with with this. Yeah, I mean, but it's also the position and the way I when I picture that I pres- I mean I don't mean to get gross, but I picture it doggy style, right? Yep, <laughs> so it's yep, like it, it's yep. also the way in which the rape is happening as well. But I get your point, Lady Leaf. Yes, I think it is also important to say that we get absolutely zero description of the woman's reaction. Like yeah. we're sitting here saying it's rape, we don't know that a hundred percent. 
maybe like if maybe all these dancers go in there with the expectation that this is a cultural practice that they have. But I think it's a fair bet to say that it was probably not very consensual, especially yeah. when we consider that the, the Dothraki keep slaves. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's I think it's a fair point to raise. And I think it's interesting that there's zero description of how this woman reacts. And also like none of the not, not Daenerys and also not like Illyrio, none of them really are grossed out that they're witnessing a rape in front of them happening. So it's it's weird. Uh, now talking about, because a lot of people have brought this up, how like the Westerosi are just as, you know, the, the knights in Westeros, they all do, there's so many mentions of rape in the books, you could probably count it up to like 500. And I do think part of that is George R. R. Martin trying to uh, give us, um, to highlight this hypocrisy of the Westerosi, that they are the Wittithraki are savages, they don't understand sin or shame, and then you have Bruce Bolton putting a pyre in a stock outside, like in Harrenhal, naked, and all the people, like everyone can go around and rape her if they want to. And they do that in public, and no one's like, oh, look at these northerners, they don't have any. So, and I think one of the passages that probably highlights this, this George's attempt to highlight this hypocrisy is when, far, much later in the book, when, in the first book, when the Dothraki are raiding the Lazarine village, and Daenerys sort of sees how they're raping and pillaging their way through this 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 innocent village and she complains to Sejora about all the rapes that are happening and Sejora tells her that he says I saw King's Landing after the after the sack babes were butchered that day as well and old men and children at play more women were raped than you can count so they're sort of like in in the the literature that I read in preparation for this podcast uh, there were sort of like two camps some research researchers said that this passage is meant to highlight the hypocrisy. So Sejora is saying, listen, the Westerosi knights, they're just as crazy, they're just as brutal as the Sothraki. And there are others who say, well, there is still a difference because the Dothraki raping the Lazarene women is presented as the spoils of war. Sejora says they fought hard for their cow and now they demand their reward. And in whenever there's rape in Westeros, in the sack of King's Landing or the battle at the wall, it happens, but it's sort of like it's described or it's implied that it's a result of this brutality of war. When you know, when a man's blood is hot, he turns into a monster, something like that, I think. So Barristan says that. So you could make an argument that, 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 that for the Dothraki, rape is a part of their culture, whereas in the Westerosi Nights, it's sort of a a diversion or it's it's something that is a result of the overall brutality of war do you have a yeah i, I have a disclaimer here uh and and uh, i don't want to get too personal but as a survivor myself and i have friends that are survivors of sexual assault i i do have to do a disclaimer in saying that yeah rape in dothraki culture is seen as the spoil a prize or the spoils of war i'm not downplaying by saying this we're not downplaying sexual assault and violence rape is rape and rape is always wrong However, the fact that Danny judges the Asosi, but not the Westerosi, is important, and that's what we're taking note of here. Asosi practices are seen as barbaric and unjustified, Orientalist, whereas similar behavior in Westeros is 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 justified, basically. Um, so that's that's kind of the disclaimer I want to say, which is that um, obviously we're not saying, oh, well, if it's a part of your culture, then sexual assault is okay. That's not what we're saying. What we're pointing out is the hypocrisy of Westerosi when it comes. Uh, Thraki, basically. Yeah, and I think that's what George R. R. Martin is trying to point out as well by having Zajora tell Daenerys, listen, you know, the Westerosi knight 
I saw King's Landing after the sack, and it was just as bad as this. But going like one level deeper, the subtext still kind of implies that there is kind of a difference because no one in Westeros ever talks about rape as a spoil of war. It's always talked about as a side effect. But no one ever says, well, you know, these knights, you know, they, they fought hard for their lord and now they want their, you know, they want a little something, you know. It's not, it's, I'm sure you could probably find someone saying that. I think Gregor does see <laughs> you, it that way, you, though. I would argue that Gregor sees yes. sees it that way. But if, I wouldn't say, like you were saying, because of these ideas of chivalry in Westerosi society, um, even if you go against them, they're still technically there and taught. So it's not necessarily ingrained in Westerosi society uh, it would be seen as going against your knightly valor to do that. Whereas in Dothraki, it, uh, in the Dothraki culture, it is not. Yeah, like when when, when Daenerys goes to Khal Drogo, Khal Drogo's like, I can't stop them. This is what they, they do. This is, they've earned it. You know, this is this is correct. But if a woman went to, I think there's, is it Randall Tarly? Where a woman goes to him and complains that she was raped by one of his men? No, I think that's not a thing. Ah, but but when Stannis takes the the wall... It's it's like mentioned that there were two men, two of his men raped some wilding women and he had them gelded. So in Westeros, there at least the potential that you can be punished. For I would it, say it though, is with the, technically the north, illegal. Though, you have the fir- you do have the Lord's right to the first night. So there is in the north at least a yeah. um, a very very specific right. It's only a Lord and a newly married woman. So a very specific case of in, I would call it institutionalized rape in the north just like we have in Dothraki. But I would say overall in the Seven Kingdoms, it, it's yeah. it's not institutionalized. It is at least technically outlawed, even though you have to have people like Tywin covering for their henchmen and not bringing them actually to justice. But it is different. It is not an, it's not an essential part of their warrior culture the way that it is with the Dothraki, who are much more similar to like the Vikings in that regard. And I just want to highlight Anna's comment saying that Danny's idealized view of Westeros is very similar to Europeans having an idealized version of their own culture, which is a very good point. Um, and I think what's especially interesting about Daenerys is that she's never even been to Westeros. So she only has the, whatever Viserys has fed her, and obviously he's idealizing it because he thinks he's the king, or the rightful king of this of this great, great nation. Yeah, and this obviously, thank you, Anna, for your comment, because it, it leads us neatly into the next major topic I want to talk about, which is Daenerys's cultural identity and this is i think very interesting because in the very first chapter that we get of the Nerys, she's sort of like looking at the narrow sea and she's dreaming about uh the you know, westeros the land of the andals and how it's her lost home country and all that stuff and then she recounts her upbringing, how she was smuggled away at, at the ba- as a baby from Dragonstone, and they went to Pentos, Bravos, uh, Mir, Tyrosh, Norvos, Kohor, and, and all the way back to Pentos. So she has seen a lot of different cultures throughout her life, and she was brought up in a lot of different cultural contexts. But I don't think it, it really... I don't think... I never get the sense that that is reflected in her character. She's very much a Westerosi character, and all her morals and and... Uh, so her moral standards and her cultural values are mainly Westerosi, even though she's never lived there and she's ne- she's never been there. And, and all these other cultures that she's grown up in, none of them seem to have really impacted her in any way. Like growing up in Pentos, you'd think she'd maybe be a little more accustomed to slavery because Illyrio keeps slaves in his, in his manse. 
So that is a bit strange. Why do you think? Why do you think Daenerys isn't more of of of, of a how do you even say that a multicultural per- person who 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 has sort of like a lot of who is very different from, for example, Tyrion or Sansa in the way she thinks about about things and. Yeah, I think that some of it is her, consciously or not, uh, she's always pining after Westeros and wanting to be Westerosi. And so she sees it as if she takes on these SOC kind of, um, you know, uh, practices, then she would not be accepted when she returns home. But we see, uh, and we're going to, of course, talk about this, when she starts integrating herself into Dothraki culture, she starts wearing the clothes. She starts getting used to riding a horse and eating horse meat and, and talking about, um, you know, the, the, was it Mother Mountain or, um, uh, and, and the, the stallion and the, the stallion that rides all of these kinds of religious practices. Mm-hmm. So, but when we first see her, she is not at all multicultural. And it's not until she becomes a Khaleesi that we see her doing what we're going to talk about next, which is mimicry. Oh, yes, mimicry. Uh, just another great comment from the chat. Uh, Violent Messiah. She would have been too young at first, plus most of what she learned was from Viserys. Very good point. Because obviously Viserys is... Oh, I accidentally highlighted a comment. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it was a great comment. Saza. <laughs> yeah, and he uh, instilled in her this idea of Westerosi and, uh, superiority. So she would have followed that. Yes. Viserys... I think is the character where we, we we see George's awareness of uh, cultural chauvinism and and racism the most. So Viserys is is very bigoted. You know, he says that ah oh, the the the, Khalees, the as as Daenerys becomes more integrated, she says you know not I'm not a queen, I'm a Khaleesi. These are my people now. You shouldn't you shouldn't talk about them in that way. She offers him the. Traditional Dothraki garbs, so he's more comfortable when riding, and he sees it as an insult because he considers them savages. And he says, "Oh, the savages—they lack the—they lack the wit to understand the speech of civilized men." Yeah, stuff like that. So he's very, yeah. very clearly a very racist, orientalist, colonialist type. And, and this, this, a, yeah. I was just going to say, Sasuke has a really great comment about how Viserys and Daenerys were also kind of hidden away in this fancy you know, estate, and they were kind of kept away from the common people or the local culture. So that could be another reason that they, they didn't true. absorb it. Though it's also mentioned that they spend a lot of time on the streets. So I assume it's a mixture of, of them living with rich people like the Sea Lord of Bravos and Illyrio and living on the streets. And I think Tyrosh is where they lived on the street. Yeah. And, and Viserys always resented the times that they were poor. And, yes, you know. Because it doesn't fit the whole, I am you know, king. he doesn't. I am yeah. the king. I'm not a savage who lives in the dirt and all that stuff. Yes. So we have Viserys who expresses very, very bigoted attitudes towards the Dothraki. And he is clearly framed as being wrong and being a villain. So that's an important point to raise. Now let me remember where I was going with this. Ah, yeah. It, it's, it's, he is the one who gives her, 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 her education about Westeros. And if you come from a place where you're this chauvinistic about your home culture, Obviously, Daenerys, who's never been there, is going to have a, a vastly idolized uh, idea of what Westeros is like. So we can forgive her for that in part, though she she definitely has the resources to educate herself further. You know, Sir Jorah gives her this book, but even the book is like legends and tales of the Age of Heroes. It's not exactly, uh, I don't know, Septon Baths 
boring encyclope- Westerosi encyclopedia or anything like that. But yeah, so that, that's also part of it. And then there's her growing up with, with a bunch of rich people. Okay, but now to get to what, we, what you said, mimicry. And mimicry is usually in Orientalist in Orientalist uh, studies is something that is referred to a practice that colonized people do. It's a process of colonized people adapting certain aspects of the, the culture of the colonizer to gain power. So they assimilate for example, a good what would be a good example? Uh, you have a culture where it's tradition to wear a turban and uh, some some form some form of other garb, and then you have the western the western people come in and you start wearing a top hat and a bow tie, and you maybe shave your beard and you have a mustache. So you assimilate the way you look, and then the colonizers think, oh look at this guy, this guy is more civilized than all the turban wearing beard having other people. Let's make him the chief of, of something. That's sort of the idea. And Daenerys, obviously, in the first book, when she's with the Dothraki, more, is kind of a colonized person in the way that she's robbed of her agency and sold off into this alien culture where she is subservient to Khal Drogo. She's still in a much better position than most, like 80 or 90% of the Kalasar. She has her own slaves, like she has servants and stuff, and there's people who do heed her commands. But yeah, she, she integrates herself... But how much of that integration is her genuinely embracing this new culture? And how much of that is her assimilating in order to get out of this situation where she is without agency? And I think this, her practice of mimicry becomes far more obvious in the later books. When she's in Karth, for example, when she shows up in Karth, she's wearing the lion pelt that Khal Drogo gave her. And she thinks to herself, oh, I must look like a savage to these people. Like she's looking at their big walls. And then in the next chapter, we see her wearing a traditional uh, traditional Carthian garb that exposes the left breast. So we see that she very quickly tries to fit in with this new culture because she does try. She needs their support. She needs their money. She goes around asking. And this is the process of mimicry. So, So I want to ask you how much you think... How much of her embracing the Thraki culture was just a sort of survival tactic, and how much did she actually broaden her horizon, you know, and and and, and embrace new ideas and new cultural norms? Yeah, so I think she did realize that they were indeed not savages, that they were people just like everyone else. So I think that she broadened her horizons, and that she realized they were, you know, she she becomes very close to her servants and listens to them, and she leads the Kalasar. That being said, doing things like calling herself a Khaleesi and all of this, but then being able to get out of being the Dosh Kaleen, you know, a normal Dothraki Khaleesi would not be able to just go, I'm not going to become Dosh Kaleen later, right? Which is, um, you know, so she, she does have an out as being a Targaryen woman that a lot of the, Doth- the Dothraki women don't. They can't change their circumstances like she can, Right. So I do think that she does have an out in the end, whether she's aware of it or not. And because of that, although it is a little bit of a survival tactic, it is a little bit like playing dress up, um, right? And she also calls the headdress that she wears as the Queen of Marine her floppy ears, right? So she's kind of making fun of it a little bit. And she knows that it's a temporary situation at this point. She knows that she's going to work toward going to Westeros. Now, when we get to the end of book five, she says, I'm going to rule as a queen. Right. So so she does become a more permanent fixture in Marine. 
but she does feel like she's kind of playing house a little bit. She's also a little naive thinking that she can leave, I believe it was Yunkai, and just leave a, like a, you know, a, um, a committee there to just, and that everything will just stay the same when slavery comes back very quickly, right? She's also a little naive about how ingrained these are into the culture, which makes me think she hasn't fully absorbed the, the kind of um, importance of practices like slavery to the, to the upper class of yes. this culture. It reminds me a lot of like the British in the early 20th century, drawing some lines on a map and then being surprised when there's lots of war and civil unrest. You know, it's like, what? Who could have, who could have predicted this? And Daenerys thinks, yeah, okay, I ended slavery. I've made, I've made them better people. I, they got rid of their barbaric practice. Now I'm going to put a, uh, what I think it's a priest, a scholar and a former slave or something like that. Like this council of three people. Yeah. And yeah. obviously that's not going to work out. And then there's Cleon, the butcher king. He takes command. He oh, it takes... It's very similar to, you know, when the US in, steals some, some country's oil and takes over the country and then some dictator seizes control in this sort of chaos and power vacuum that results of it. And this is very much what happened there. And I think this is something George R. Martin is consciously trying to evoke because he's on tape as being very critical of these types of, of policies and foreign interventions as you mentioned in the beginning he was an, a conscientious objector in the in the uh vietnam, the war. vietnam war yeah, yeah. and i do want to say for those of you that actually are interested in the um in the kind of colonial and post-colonial scholarship side of this uh homie baba which is hmi and then b-h-a-b-a and Derek Walcott, W-A-L-C-O-T-T, they have both written extensively about mimicry and specifically from the side of the colonized, uh, which is usually where mimicry is used, which is why I find it really interesting that uh, George is using uh, mimicry on the side of the conqueror, in this case, Danny. Um, although, you know, we can argue, of course, when she's a Khaleesi, she didn't mean, she didn't actively want to conquer the Kalasar. It's she was kind of thrown into that position. But Marine, she marched in there wanting to conquer. So you can yes. say then for her to, to kind of mimic their culture um, is a way of trying to get them to accept her. But I think it's also a way of just trying to get more comfortable in there. And like the Green Grace goes on to, to um, say, hey, you're always going to be seen as a conqueror. You need to marry a Miranese man. And even, you know, and he will be seen as the king. So there's also a little, of course, as always, some sexism in it as well. Um, you know, uh, when yeah. a lot of people didn't want to accept Aegon the Targaryen, but they certainly accepted him, you know, would have accepted him quicker than if Visenya was the one leading the, um, you know, yeah. the, the, the main conqueror. Um, so I, I don't want to discount the sexism that is also there. You know, they, they see it as, oh, this little girl coming and saying what we should do with our money. And if you notice all of the wise, ma wise masters, good masters, you know, however, whatever they call themselves, each each city has their own thing. They're always patriarchs. Yes. And bringing it back to the Dothraki, uh, talking about this, this mimicry, uh, I think in, in the book, she does become more comfortable with the Dothraki culture. and But part of that comes with her realizing the power she has as the Khaleesi. So it's not really, oh, I love being part of this culture and being I love these people. It's more like, oh, if I embrace this culture i get to have control and power over all these people so even early on there's some of that colonialist mindset sneaking in because she's not like any she's not living 
amongst the Dothraki the way that Kevin Costner lived with the with the Native Native Americans and <laughs> dances with wolves. She's a queen, like she's she's very she's in a position of power and she has her own like servants and stuff. So, but I think it's especially after Viserys is dead, and Viserys' death also. In a uh, quick note, they kill him by pouring gold over his head, which must be a reference by George R. R. Martin to uh, the the people of what is now Mexico killing uh, Spanish colonizers by pouring like molten silver or molten gold down their throats. I think that was probably, uh, especially because Viserys is presented as very greedy. So this idea of a symbolic death where the, the people he tried to exploit kill him by pouring <laughs> liquid gold over his head. Very nice. <laughs> very, very nicely done. And I think very evocative of this part of history, which, which reinforces this idea that Viserys is supposed to be framed as this type of colonizer who tries to exploit people. And, you know, the Dothraki weren't having it. He clearly had no, he showed no interest of understanding how their culture works. So Jorah tells him a thousand times, you can't, it's not, that's not how it works. They don't owe you anything. They don't do selling. They only do gifts. And he just doesn't get it. And Daenerys does get it. She realizes, okay, I wear the, I wear the appropriate dress. I call myself a Khaleesi. I actually have power. But then after Viserys is dead, she immediately goes to, okay, now I'm the queen. Now I have to conquer Westeros. So she still thinks of the Dothraki as a means to an end. She's not content with living amongst the Dothraki in this new culture. She still wants to, she, she still wants to reconquer Westeros, her home country that she considers to be her actual place of belonging, even though, she, again, she's never lived there. She was born on Dragonstone. She has never even set foot on Westeros. And she somehow, somehow has this idea in her head that they're all just waiting for her to come back, despite the fact that they murdered her family overthrew her father and uh, forced her to run away. So this idea that, that, that they'll just welcome her and that she can just come back there and take the throne shows a certain, a certain level of, of narcissism, I think. Would you, would you agree? I, I think it's not until she gets, uh, she realizes that she needs the army, an army and gets the unsullied that she realizes that she's going to have to, con you know, it's going to have to be conquest. And not uh, go there and then get some, sit on Dragonstone and send ravens to lords and get some houses on your side. I think she realizes it's going to have to be marching with um, the Unsullied. And if I could also make a note about that, um, we haven't mentioned the Unsullied. I do find it interesting that, and like I said, Danny is my favorite character, my favorite POV. And the reason that is, is because I can do all of this Orientalist, Colonialist kind of analysis about her and her actions. What I find interesting is that she frees the Unsullied, and yet they all serve her. They only know battle and serving. So did she really free them? I think is a very big question that I always ask when I think of her freeing the slaves, because where are they going to go? Um, and also there's a great comment. Yes. Um, I, I think that's supposed to be AI Bond or Al Bond. I'm not sure. I think AI Bond about uh, reading Franz Fanon. I, uh, I quoted him <laughs> earlier about decolonization of the mind. He's the best as far as critical race studies and um, colonial studies. Uh, so yeah, yes. Franz Fanon talks a lot about the, these kinds of, um, uh, you know, superiority and conquest kind of uh, yeah. aspects yeah. and mimicry. He also talks about that as well. Yeah, Elle, she she knows she knows her stuff when it comes to reading reading theory. She's also one of my 
dearest internet friends, and I'm very embarrassed that she's watching this. Oh, so hello. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. <laughs> I was so glad that she well, didn't show up. Well, I'm glad someone else knows who Franz Fanon is because I, uh, I, I certainly I, don't. I, I've had to read quite a bit of Franz Fanon in my uh, colonial theory classes, and I say had to. I mean, I actually really enjoy reading Fanon. Um, there are a lot, yeah. trust me, there are a lot of other scholars like, no offense, homie Baba, but woo, can you just say it like, just like in a shorter sentence with smaller words, please? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I actually, I actually have a quote by homie Baba in this script, but I didn't use it because it's too long. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, homie Baba point. is very verbose. Sorry, Al Bond. I'm sorry about that. It looks like yeah. AI. <laughs> I apologize. It does look like AI. Um, Al yeah. Bond. Gotcha. Um, yeah, but so, and we've also been talking about, um, yeah, with the Viserys and, and his kind of murder as well. I think it's also his, uh, with the killing of Viserys, it's a, it's a little bit symbolic of the killing of her naivete, a little bit about, um, just getting the Kalasar together and then going to Westeros and that's it. I think after she, he dies, she realizes he's gonna, she's gonna need a lot more than just this. And that's where she goes on to go to Slaver's Bay and get the Unsullied, um, you know. And and now she realizes, crap, I need ships. <laughs> so I think it's it's the death of her childhood yes. in many ways. It's all it's all resource allocation from there on. She only ever thinks about her end goal of uh, the conquest and, and all her... I mean, there's the aspect of... We're going to get to that later. We should probably finish up with the Dothraki storyline because we're going to get to, obviously, the Marine Conquest. Uh, and I think your point about the Unsullied is very good. Because yes, she she technically freed them. She gave them a choice. But is it really a choice if there are other options? Is like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you can. I guess you can stay here in this city I ruined. Uh, you were also like brainwashed since you were children to obey. But I suppose I technically gave you a choice. So there's no guilt. No guilt. <laughs> it's like it's like it's a bit. It's a bit. It feels like a bit of a cop out sometimes. It's a bit and of a like cop out. Like I said, yeah. like I want to reiterate, Danny's my favorite character. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he's my favorite I liked, POV. I like Daenerys. I am yeah. not one of the Danny haters. Trust me, I get mad. I I at those people on the internet. Like, trust me. Yeah, I think that people and and I think if if Daenerys was Daenero, I don't think we'd be getting the same hate from the fandom. I think also yes. because she's a female, we have a yes. lot of people going. I'm, I hate to keep cussing, but oh god, this bitch, you know, she this and that, you know. And if it were just Aegon, you know, or whatever, uh, you know, people don't give young Griff the same shit, and he has the same amount of entitlement. Yes. Very good point. I think people are more forgiving of, of young Griff because he's sort of like, when he starts out, he's in no position of power. Like, he's, like he's hidden and he's not... Uh... But I think that entitlement is going to come through. But talking about Daenerys, to bring it back to uh, to finish up her Dothraki arc, because we, yes, we've been going for one and, a, <laughs> one and a half hours. So Daenerys, she never really abandons her uh, sort of Westerosi viewpoint. There's there's a quote of her saying that the Dothraki were wise when the Dothraki were wise where horses were concerned, but they could be utter fools about much else. So that's still that's a very Viserys opinion. And then after Drogo's death, which is a point that you made earlier, she disregards many of the Dothraki customs. You know, she says, Dosh Kaleen, not doing that, fuck that. And she also says to Sajora, Sajora asks her, are you going to step into the pile, uh, the pyre? Because I think that that is a practice of some, uh, some widows as well. And she says, no, I'm not, I'm not such a child as that. Yes, which and is I think that is um, also inspired by the uh, practice of sati in uh, India, 
of where uh, a widow, yeah. rather than be a quote unquote burden to her, to the family, uh, when her husband dies, she walks into the pyre with him and it's actually considered virtuous in uh, traditional Indian culture. It's also similar yeah. to widow suicide in, in, in um, ancient and early modern China, where uh, a woman would uh, kill herself rather than uh, be a burden on her family or be subject to uh, sexual assault. So there's also a lot of that going on. Yeah, I think um, the I think the uh, I think um, the Norse, like the Vikings, had had similar had some similar practices. Uh, but yeah, it's it's this idea that she says I'm not such a child as that is this, is an example of this as we said infantilization of the Dothraki yes. culture. She says ah that's not that she obviously she does step in in the end uh, she changes her mind. But uh, yeah, and then the. You know, uh, the death of Karl Drogo and the Pyre brings us to the issue with Miriam Asdur, which I, is, I think is a very, very, it's something we should definitely talk about. So Miriam Asdur, or Miri, I don't have no idea how to pronounce that. Miriam Asdur, mm -hmm. I think it's, she has a village uh, pillaged by the Dothraki. By the way, which they're doing because Daenerys convinced Karl Drogo to invade Westeros. So they're allocating resources for the conquest. That's why they plunder. And this is the scene where she complains to Zajora about the rape and he says, oh, the sack of King's Landing. This is that that moment. And Daenerys, she sees Miriam Asdur and she saves her. She she she, she says that uh, the, she tells the Dothraki warriors to stop assaulting the women and she convinces Khal Drogo to, to stop his men from doing it. So in her mind, she has saved Miriam Asdur. She never really... Her, her mind never really quite goes far enough to where she's like, hmm, maybe I should call off my whole in invasion if this is the cost. She never considers calling off her conquest in order to save all these people who will inevitably have to be, uh, you know, pillaged to allocate all the gold and the money. So she saves Miriam Asdur. Later, she disregards the, the sort of indigenous knowledge, the wisdom of the Dothraki who warn her that bad things might befall, befall Khal Drogo if if she lets this witch, this Maegi, as they call her, uh, treat him, she's like, oh, it's really, you know, the Dothraki, they're bigoted towards witches, but she's obviously a, a qualified healer, so so do your thing. She ignores their advice, even though they're probably, they probably are far more knowledgeable about Maegis, Maegis, however you pronounce it. Magi? Uh, Magi. I, I, I think it's Maegi. I think Maegi is more in line with Magis, the way Dothraki yeah. pronounce things. Uh, yeah. Because also Cersei mis mis mishears it as Maggie, so I think a hard G is probably more likely. And yeah, so she ignores them, and then Miriam must do it. She kills uh, Daenerys' child, who was prophesied to be the mountain, the, the stallion who mounts the world, who would have brought unthinkable suffering to <laughs> the, the Lazarene people. And she turns Caldrogo into a vegetable. And then Daenerys is she's shocked at this betrayal. And I think readers who read it for the first time, they also don't kind of don't see it coming. This idea that this this woman gets her revenge on colonizers. It's it's that's what it is. Her village is being plundered and invaded, and she gets revenge. And Daenerys is so flabbergasted by this. And she tells Miriam Asdur, uh I have to let me find the let me find the, the thing, the quote. All right, there we go. She said, why did you, Danny says, why did you do this? I saved you. And then this is a quote, saved me, the Lazarene wo woman spat. 
Three riders had taken me, not as, ma not as a man takes a woman, but from behind, as a dog takes a bitch. The fourth was in me when you rode past. How then did you save me? I saw my God's house burn, where I had healed good men beyond counting. My home they burned as well, and in the street I saw piles of heads. I saw the head of a baker who made my bread. I saw the head of a boy I had saved from dead-eye fever only three moons past. I heard children crying as the riders drove them off with their whips. Tell me again what you saved. Your life. Miriam must do it laughed cruelly. Look at your Carl and see what life is worth when all the rest is gone. <laughs> And I, I do love want that. To point out that I love there's that. a lot to unpack there, but I do want to point out that that one part about they took me from behind goes back to my point of the earlier yep. rape that yep. it was it wasn't just the public way it, publicness of it it was the way in which it was being done. Um, it's it, you know that is they're being seen as animalistic for the way in which they have intercourse too. Yeah, so so Miria also has her own bigoted opinions about them, but I think we can ex forgive her for that just in this one instance. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little, uh, bit, a little bit of emotion going on there right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but she, she says, my baker, the man who made my bread, my God's house, her cultural landmarks. The Dothraki have this practice of stealing other cultures' gods and bringing them to Vice Dothrak. And yeah, so Daenerys, she, she's like, yeah, I saved your life. Yeah, sure, your, your, you know, your culture was ruined and your village was plundered, but at least you're alive. And then Mary Mazdur makes what I think is an excellent point. Look at Khal Drogo, see what life is worth when all you know that that defies you your culture the people you love and all of that is gone and what does Daener what does what does Daenerys do in response to this does she realize the mistake of her ways does she call off her invasion plans because she realizes it's not worth it no she burns Miriam as at the stake <laughs> alive a woman who in my opinion did nothing wrong and is completely in the right here in this in this situation like i mean and this i think is 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 Another example of this type of, of narcissism that I think Daenerys does have, and I think it's 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 going to come back on a larger scale when she finally does arrive in Westeros and she she has that realization that oh they actually don't want me they already have Aegon or, or whoever maybe Jon Snow I don't know you know they don't need a savior they're tired of war they don't know who I am they don't want me this this culture this country who I always thought was my home. And now they're now they're uh, they're saying you you didn't save us you burnt down King's Landing and our life is terrible now, and it's the same in Marine as well. What did you save? You ruined the economy and now everyone's poor. Congratulations, and and, and she responds very badly to that. She has this savior complex where she 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 reacts with extreme violence to people who are ungrat ungrateful to what she thinks is you know her saving them. Yeah, and also she doesn't anticipate not just what. The Kalasar will do, but what people would do in response or even knowing that they're coming, right? So you have the example of her going to Slaver's Bay and them intentionally, the masters, having a slave, you know, every mile um, crucified. So she, she doesn't quite understand, I don't think she quite understands until she sees it, how people are going to react to being conquered, right? They're going to fight back tooth and nail. Right. And then when she gets to Marine, you have the Sons of the Harpy. Right. So you're going to have constantly um, this fighting back. And I do want to say of the Harpy, I find that very interesting because it's a female depiction in a very patriarchal society. And originally the Harpy was not a slaver. Right. A, a, a symbol of slavery. And then when slavery was brought to Slaver's Bay, I know it's literally called Slaver's Bay. But so but that is a newer name. The old Giscari Empire had the Harpy. 
And slavery wasn't this huge symbol until later. And they added the chain at the harpy's um, feet, at the harpy's talons to show, to, to like form her into a slaver. And I wonder if there's a little bit of symbolism going on here where Danny fights against slavery is not about slavery and then later sort of becomes something like a slaver herself. Once again, not a criticism of Danny. She's my favorite character. But she is in intentionally or not reproducing a lot of these, uh, these institutions that, you know, in the show, she says, I want to break the wheel. But she doesn't, right? And so I think you want to listen yeah. to her intent, what she says and her internal thoughts and her intention, and then look at her actions and the results. And do they match up? I think that's a really interesting part of reading Danny's POV. That's a very interesting. Yeah, I think and there's an interesting comment here that says from uh, Collier, or I mean, I guess her YouTube name is, is still L, but uh, and she asks, I do wonder if Danny is written consciously as a white savior type or if George uh, is just falling into a trope. That I think is a very good question. And I think it's a, a, a bit of both. Like we certainly talked about before how he is definitely aware of post-colonialist post thinking and how he has characters like Viserys who are very obviously racist and portrayed as wrong. And then he he, he, like, he shows like Daenerys doesn't save them. This is a point that Miriam Azdur makes. He didn't save me. Uh, sure, I, mean, I guess I'm alive. Great, thanks. <laughs> I'd rather be dead probably at this point. And uh, the same is kind of true for the for the Miranese. Everything, like she gets there and it's all problems ever since her conquest. So, uh, yeah, like I think Daenerys is, she thinks of herself as a white savior in, in a weird way. And she responds very badly to to the to people not being appreciative of her saving, and this is a thing that to bring it back to the mimicry that we talked about. She does mimicry in in with the Dothraki because she uh, has to. She's powerless. She doesn't have agency. She has to embrace that culture in order to gain power. And then later in Calf, she needs their money. She needs their ships. So she wears the weird boob dress, and she. <laughs> She, she, she still thinks their practices are weird, like the on-command crying and stuff. But then as, as we get to Marine, she conquers Marine very violently. Like the sack of Marine, it's mentioned that there are, a lot again, a lot of rapes. George R. Martin loves his rapes. There's uh, so many stuff. And then she calls it like, oh, I have to put on my floppy ears. I have to put on this tokar so that these these idiots, you know, if I wanted to be queen of the rabbits, I have to wear my, my funny ears. And you can tell that she's a bit more annoyed at having to still put up with this mimicry because as far as she's concerned she won she conquered she's in charge so why does she still have to put up with this farce and this is i think what is evidence of her not actually having any interest in really assimilating with these cultures that she interacts with it's just a tool to gain power and when she already has the power she's frustrated that she still has to engage with this floppy ear ear practice yeah i think that's a good point and also i i like to compare scenes that are in the book and the show and book readers get her internal thoughts and seeing show only watchers what they thought she was thinking about. So there's that one where she goes, Sir Jorah, I shall rule Marine. And Sir Jorah leaves and she goes and she stands there looking. And it's a very epic shot. And you have the big Targaryen banner over the harpy behind her, right? And she'll watch like, of the will. Yeah, badass woman boss. That's great. Awesome. In the book, she's literally thinking gods must be lonely like this. Oh my God, that is such dangerous thinking. She is thinking of herself on the same plane as a god in the book. And it's a scary moment. 
if you're a book reader yes. being like, oh, no. Yeah. But a and show watcher is like, woo, go, Danny, getting rid of slavery. Boom, 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 you go, girl. Yeah. So I think when we get her internal monologue, we actually see the narcissism that we've kind of been talking about. And you do see that in the show. I'm not saying it's not there. Yeah, like that, that image. in the show. It looks yeah. like of like a Lenny Riefenstahl movie, <laughs> where yeah. she's standing in front of that giant uh, dragon thing banner. It, it does yeah, kind of communicate that. The narcissism is there, hubris. but I'm saying when you get the internal POV, not only do we get her um, her kind of uh, insecure thoughts, which are important for her character, but we also get her just don't say that out loud thoughts, like "Ah, oh, gods must be lonely like this," um, and that that can. It's that scene looks triumphant in the show and in the book. If you're a careful reader, you should be scared <laughs> because she's taken over these people. And, you know, even with the Sons of the Harpy and everything, she has all of this power. And she kind of just slipped into this society. Um, she slid into their DMs, <laughs> right? Kind of. And, um, and it's, it's dangerous because, uh, for her, it's a practice round to go to Westeros. Well, what's Marine going to be like when she leaves? She's going to create a power vacuum. Who's going to fill yes. that? Very, very, very important point. She she says, I'm going to be queen of Marine because how can I say I want to rule an entire country if I can't even rule one city? That is, You could read that as one of the rare instances of some humility on her part. But if you think about it, like she, she basically considers Marine like a practice run it's just a, like Essos as a setting is just a foil for Daenerys to gain experience for the conquest that the readers actually care about which is Westeros no one gives a shit about Marine so um, I mean if you do that's fine I don't <laughs> and, uh, and yeah like it's it's the same with the Dothraki her long term goal is always how can I use this for my conquest of Westeros West arose which is what I really care about, and which is also what the reader really cares about. Uh, we have here another comment saying that I thought it was way worse in the show, which I guess is referring to uh, Daenerys's uh, attitude. And I would certainly agree that 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 her like the girl bossness of Daenerys way worse in the show. Also, all the yeah. racism, <laughs> also yeah, all the definitely. racism, and also the all the raping. It's all it's all worse in the show. The show sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. It's awful. And reflective rambling <laughs> has a reflective rambling has a great comment. Training wheels town is basically what Marine is. Uh, yeah, and, yes. and and it it allows the reader, I think, to step into Danny's dismissal of Marine as an important place in the world. She just sees it as this backwater, slavery ridden, you know. Uh, city and and it allows the reader to kind of dismiss the Miranese just like Danny is. Yes, and then your your oh this is this is what a god must feel like. Very good, uh, very good observation, and it's it's sort of like a kind of instance of fake humility because it's like oh gods must be lonely, oh this is so hard, oh being a god is terrible, but <laughs> you know she still thinks of herself as a god, and that is problematic. And there's another instance where she. I'm not quite sure. I don't remember the context, but it's some other like policy that she that she uh, puts into place, and then she thinks to herself, "Maybe I cannot make my people good, but at least I can make them a little less bad." And so it's this idea that she doesn't think of the Marines as like individuals; she just thinks of them as like a rotten society that she's trying to fix. So she's like, oh, "I can make them a little bit better, you know. At least there's not slavery." And that leads into uh, another important aspect, I think, of Daenerys's Marines Marine arc which is George's criticism of interventionalism, which is very closely... Interventionalism is basically like new new colonialism, like this idea of countries stepping into the 
the, the global south, trying to fix and democratize their countries, very much based on uh, Orientalist uh, thinking and ideas. Prime example of this is uh, the, the parliament in Jordan. So Jordan had, didn't have a parliament. Then some, some, some Western democracy promoters came in. They set up a, a parliament. And then all the, 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 jo the Jordan people, I don't know the proper adjective, uh, they voted for people they were like related to. Like everyone voted for their uncle or their brother. Or they didn't really vote the way that they would politically, like they didn't vote according to their political beliefs. And so the democracy promoters, they were like, well, hmm, the culture, the, the culture in Jordan, they're just not ready. Yet. You know, they're not ready for democracy. They, they don't have that democratic mindset. They don't get how it works. They don't understand that you're supposed to vote for who you agree with and not who can give you, get you a cushy job. But then if you go beyond that very surface level and wrong, uh, Western-centric uh, interpretation, you realize that the parliament in Jordan, it just, it's powerless because the, the, uh, Democracy promoters, they set up in agreement with the king. And obviously the king wasn't going to agree to any type of parliament that has any actual power. So the, the Jordan, the people of Jordan, obviously they realized this. And so they voted for people who can give them good jobs because they realized that voting for people who will fight for their religion, their political beliefs, is not going to do anything because the parliament is powerless. And that is a level of, of analysis that they just, that they just don't do. And I think we can take some, some lessons from that and look at Danny coming into Marine, completely doing a turnover on their, democ on their not democracy, <laughs> on their economy. And she changes the entire system. And then at first she's confused. Like it's all, she doesn't really improve anything. Uh, and then it's, uh, it's, it's something like the, at first she has a very hard stance. Like, nope, there's no fighting pits. There's no slavery. Later, she sort of falls into that, okay, some slavery. There is the guy who comes and says, I want to sell myself back into slavery. And she says, okay, that's fine. And then Missandei says, oh, by the way, in Astapor, which is another slaver culture, they took t a tenth of, of the money every time a slave was sold. And then he says, oh, cool, we do the same. Because in the back of her head, she's still thinking resources. I need money for Westeros. So instead of thinking, hmm, maybe I should break the wheel. Maybe I should destroy the system that forces people to sell themselves into slavery. What she's thinking is, well, if it's going to come back, I might as well make some money off it. And it's technically not slavery. Yeah, and something that uh, Lowe made a great point in my uh, video about Orientalism and His Dark Materials is, you know, a lot of times in Western fantasy, when we have these girl boss characters, they come to power through exploitation. And Danny is very much an example of that. And so, you know, in the example of His Dark Materials, I guess, spoiler alert, um, there is a character who basically comes to power by through the death of children. I mean, there's no other way to put it. She exploits children. Um, and so I think that we need to, as an audience, and especially feminists uh, reading this series, we want to celebrate strong women. And, you know, all women are strong. We want to celebrate the women that are, uh, that are, you know, making things happen. But we also need to recognize when they're being just as exploitative and prejudiced as men. So, for example... Um, Lo the Lynx and I are currently working on an essay about Lysone Omar, and uh, we love we both love Ariane Martel, but we noticed as we're when we're reading the upcoming uh, one of the released uh, Winds of Wind uh, chapters, I believe it's Ariane two, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, she meets Lysone Omar, and she's very discriminatory against him because he is a man who is feminized and kind of appear has 
jewels on and painted his nails and peels more, appears more like a woman, right? So even though Ariane Martel is a, you know, girl boss and she's very sex positive and we want to celebrate that, we also need to recognize when she is just as stringent about the binary as men in Westeros, right? Even being Dornish. Um, so you want to, we also want, need to do the same for Danny, which is recognize when she is doing good things, but then also acknowledge where all of this power is coming from. And a lot of times it's through exploitation. Yes. Uh, and I, it is important to acknowledge that Danny's motivations, they are noble. She's not setting out to just ruin the Slavers Bay and take all their money. She does sympathize, empathize, I should say, with the slaves. She comes from it from the perspective that she has, she's herself as a slave because she was sold to Khal Drogo, but that's kind of an oversimplification, oversimplification, especially considering that she idealizes Westeros, but that is basically also a common practice. Like her, 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 uh, her word, ugh, her fate was no different than, uh, whatever most Westerosi women go through. And I mean, she was sold off to be the wife of a cow, which is loads better than being, uh, I don't know, like a sex slave in, in Astapor, in Yunkai or, or some other poor slave in, in Astapor. And, but yes, she doesn't go in there. She does go in there with noble motivations. And that is another interesting parallel, I think, to real life uh, NGOs promoting democracy around the world. Like their goals are noble. It's just that the, the frame that they're working with is bad. And they want, like, they actually do, they think democracy will improve people's lives. It's just that they don't understand their own biases and how they just make things worse. And the perils don't really stop there because we also see, like, for example, the Sons of the Harpy are the, this type of domestic terrorism. And I shouldn't say domestic terrorism, but, I mean, they are, like, the terrorist groups that form up as a type of civil resistance against outsiders trying to control other cultures. So it's like a problem Daenerys made, created for herself in a way. Like if she hadn't conquered Marine, there wouldn't have been any, there wouldn't have been any uh, Sons of the Harpy. And, and, the, and her like, her coming in with this idea that, that, that her Westerosi mindset of slavery is bad and she has to get rid of it. And then there's also the Shave Pates, which are her biggest supporters. And, and they show this by shaving their traditional uh, Giscari hairstyles so they abandon their own culture now they're performing mimicry to gain power in Daenerys' new regime and she's fine with that like she appoints the shave paid Skahasmo Kandak is that his name? <laughs> she uh, appoints yeah, uh, sounds <laughs> yes <right. laughs> it is and she uh, appoints him and, and the she makes the shave paid basically the police like the shave paid become the, the the police force who controls these citizens? So it's it's the people who perform mimicry who rise to power in her system. She has she has Sir Barristan uh, train her slave uh, not her slaves her her cupbearers slash hostages to be Westerosi knights, and she teaches them the common tongue. And so it's a switcheroo. So now she's not the one who does does the mimicry. Now it's the people she she colonized to do it, and it works. They they are the ones who have powerful positions. In her in her new regime, and she disregards the the cultural practices of the Miranese, like the fighting pits. Yeah, and and this assumption that the Western ways are better is inherently Orientalist, 
and that the, the West infantilizes the East saying, oh, you just don't know any better. Let me teach you, right? Um, and she, rather than, you know, uh, having local people bettering their own society, which might, you know, be a bit of smoother transition and more accepted by the common people. Instead, you have this, you, you know, you have the Westerosi, you also have the Insulid, you know, acting as, as, you know, like the city watch. Um, and so you, you, it's all her people and she's, she's not, and that's one of the things that like, what, that's one of the arguments for her getting married to a Miranese is that at least then it would look like you're bringing in Miranese people to rule Miranese. Yeah. Yes. And it's, uh, she only agrees to bring the fighting pits back once she hears from the, the people who actually fight in them that they want them back. That's when she realizes that, oh, her, her culture, like her superior moral standards, they create problems not only for like these couple of rich slavers who like, who cares about them, but it's like there's people who think that this is you, this is their culture, this is an honorable death, that, that they are glad, they're glad to die in the, in the fighting pits. And so she's like, okay, I'll open them. And then once they're open, we get into another classic problem with this idea of uh, interventionism. Because in the in the when they have the the, the first opening of, of the fighting pit, it's like okay, it's only volunteers. But then as they're talking, suddenly it's like oh maybe okay prisoners also, but only the murderers and the, the rapists. And how long does it take until she's like oh maybe also the thieves? Yeah. And then you have Tyrion and Penny, who are completely innocent. And they were going to fight. Dan Daenerys stopped it because she, she happened to find out about it. But it's this idea of, of like trying to not completely destroy the system, but kind of fix it. And it, it just shows how quickly it falls back into the old... It's the same with slavery. She, she agrees, okay, you can sell yourself into slavery and you can work at a, at a, at a, at a wage that's so meager that you might as well be a slave. But you can't technically be one. And she never spares any thought to what she's going to do once she, she, she leaves again. And she knows how that went in Marine and Astapor. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just, I think George is very, very consciously trying to subvert this, this idea of the white savior. And that it just, it doesn't work. And I think this, what we had in the show, break the wheel. That's, I think, the realization that she's going to have once she returns from the Dothraki. It's not enough to get rid of some things. You need to burn it all to the ground. Otherwise, you're not going to get rid of it. This is, I think, where her turn is going to get in. Foreshadowing, perhaps? Maybe. Yeah, because... Maybe. No, never mind. And especially when she's going to arrive in Westeros. We talked about how she has this hypocrisy where Westeros is just as bad as Slaver's Bay in many, many ways. They have thraldom. They have forced marriages. They have widespread rape is very acceptable society. Like it, it doesn't ruin your career as a man if you rape someone. Gregor Clegane is doing fine, and he's like a serial killer. So, you know, and I think she's going to realize that. I think we're criticizing her for this now, but eventually she's very good at like making conclusions. She's obviously intelligent, and once she gets there and she's rejected by Westeros, and she realizes they don't want me as their savior. And you know what did what good did it do, Marine? That I, that I saved Marine. That's when she's going to realize the monarchy serve them all these things they're just as broken as bad i can't stop the wheel i have to break the wheel and that's when i think we're going to get into a mad queen 
territory. And this is something that just in the show, they shot themselves in, in the foot a lot. For one, by leaving out Aegon, who is essential in that plot of her being rejected by the Westerosi. Because by not having him, they basically needed... That's why they had to downplay Cersei. Because if they make Cersei super cruel and crazy, everyone would just love to have Daenerys. And it would be too easy. But that's why, that's why I think George R. R. Martin introduced Aegon. He needed that. It needed to already be fixed fixed when Daenerys arrives. So she can have that Miriam Azdur moment reaction. And then yeah. after that, yeah, as it she also, tries to... Yeah, I'm yeah, just going to say, it also then has... Oh, you've already accepted this Targaryen? I, I don't know if I believe in the Fagon theory, so I'll just keep saying young Griff. But he's presenting himself as a Targaryen. So, you know, power lies where men think, think it does. So if they think he's a Targaryen and accept him, but she strolls on over and has three dragons and is a Targaryen, and they're like, nah, she's going to take that hella personally. Whereas with Cersei, I mean, maybe if Robert was still alive and on the throne... But no, she would take that, you know, Robert seeing him as the usurper. But Cersei, she doesn't have that same animus against, you know. She wouldn't hate her as much as she would hate young Griff, who is who is who has the name Aegon, right? Is a man mm -hmm. and is professing mm -hmm. to be a Targaryen and doesn't even have dragons, but is accepted way quicker than she was. You know, she's yeah. going to be, and not only that, but came over with an army of SOC, just like she did. You know, with with her with the cell swords, the Golden Company. So, yeah. what's the difference? Is how she's going to see it, and she's going to go. Well, if you guys can't tell the difference, you know, I'm just going to start from. We're going to burn it all, and we'll rise like a phoenix from the ashes. Phoenix from the yeah. ashes, right? We'll just create a new society. Yeah, because uh, Aegon is like it's it's almost comical how well things go for Aegon. Like Cersei could not have set him up more perfectly for his invasion, and Aegon does have the very unfair advantage that the Golden Company is seen by the Westerosi as a Westerosi army. It's almost exclusively made up of Westerosi swords. So it's not that same idea of foreigners invading a different culture. It's the idea of exiles returning to their, their home place. That is very different. And so when Daenerys is going to show up, Cersei is probably not going to really be a factor at this point anymore, or she's going to be like hiding in, in Castle Rock, having sex with Euron or some bullshit like that. And it's going to be Aegon. And people are going like, we don't want Daenerys. And then she's going to start a war, and she's probably going to win. But then people will be like, how did you save us? Look at King's Landing, and then tell us what life is worth when all the rest is gone. Exactly. Mary Mazdor was the micro, and King's Landing is going to be the macro. Yes, and that's when she's going to flip. She's going to realize you can't fix these people. You have to destroy everything. And that's where I think her speech in the show comes in. We have to liberate all the people from the wall to dawn, from uh, the last light to, to Karth. Because it's all terrible and it cannot be fixed. This is like, it has taken her five books to realize this, but you cannot govern people to be good. You have to burn it all to the ground and let something new come up. And this is why I do think that we will have, we'll have the quote unquote mad queen turnaround plot. Well, it's not me really a plot twist at this point <laughs> anymore because of the show, but it is going to happen, but it's just so much better set up. And, and the idea that it's in this framework of this, uh, this, this illusionment with with this idea of interventionalism working, because it doesn't work. Like I spent a whole seminar in uni. Basically, the, 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 the consensus at the end was it never works. It has never worked. And it just doesn't. It, 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 it can't. And that's the realization that she... And I think that's the realization that George R. R. Martin made. So for all the, you know, Orientalist stereotypes that he falls into, which is, we should probably say, not nearly as bad as most other fantasy literature that's, that's out there these days. Like, it's a low bar, but he... 
managed to hop over it. And I think his, his, this, this criticism of colonialism and interventionism is so much more nuanced and interesting that I think we, we shouldn't forgive, but we should not focus on these, these slip-ups and these Orientalist elements. And we should focus that and we should understand that the, in the grand scheme of things, he does understand and he does highlight this, the problem of this idea of white people going into other cultures and trying to fix them. Uh, so that would be probably my, my takeaway from this episode. Uh, Orientalism in a Song of Ice and Fire. I just realized we never brought up the title of this episode, which is <laughs> Misa is a Master, which is from uh, Season 6, Episode 1. It's a graffiti on the wall. And I think I think that's one of the things that is not in the books, but it's brilliant because that's what happened. They just exp- ex- exchanged one ruling class f- for another and one shitty system for a slightly shittier system. But all the poor people are still poor. They have to sell themselves back into slavery or they have to... Uh, work for meager wages. And what good is it that it's technically voluntary that you can sell yourself back if the, if the option is dying of starvation. So yeah, this, this, this is the, 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 the main lesson I think is a, is a critique of interventionalist policy where it's just colonialism, but like it's, 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 it's a new type of colonialism and the, the intervention mirrors and reproduces these oppressive structures that are already in place, which is exemplified through things like her bringing back the fighting pits and her bringing back some types of slavery and all this stuff. Do you have uh, 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 something to add to that? I mean, I assume you do, but we're approaching the the end of the podcast, so this would be your chance for... Yeah, I think it's a good time to just do some, some, yeah, some wrapping up thoughts. And I think that... I'm just going to go through the chat. <laughs> yeah, I think one thing that I find important is look, we can look at her when you're looking at Danny, you do want to look at her very closely, her POV, her intentions and what she wants. But I think it's also important to zoom out and look at the larger scale of Planetos and see that she's even though I feel for her and especially in the beginning, seeing her sold off and raped um, or given because, you know, the Dothraki give gifts. Um, yeah. Yes. yeah. Don't, don't want to say that wrong. <laughs> um, when you look at it, it, you think about all of the conquerors in the history and of, of, um, Planetos and in the current timeline, no matter who you support for the throne, rather it be Young Griff, Danny, Stannis, whoever you support, they're still all technically conquerors, right? And you can argue, oh, well, Stannis, you know, his brother had the throne and his kids are bastards. Therefore, he has a better right to the throne, this or that. But we've seen that in Westeros, Aegon had no right to the throne. The throne wasn't even there. It was separate kingdoms. So it's who has rights by conquest. And that is not great because no matter who you put as the conqueror, that someone, people are going to get hurt and they are going to feel godlike and superior, right? Like Ares was cool with burning down King's Landing. And he himself thought that he would just rise as a dragon, right? They get this godlike complex that we see Danny have and that we see um, Stannis have when he, he believes he is Azor High reborn, right? And young Griff has, he thinks he's been raised as the perfect prince. This is dangerous because no matter what, colonialism and being a conqueror hurts the people who you are allegedly supposed to be caring about and ruling. Yes. And the thing is, even if Daenerys conquered Westeros and won, in 10 years' time, it would just be Shireen coming over from Essos with some other sellsword army trying to take her stolen throne back. 
and this is in part, I think, the point that George is trying to make. You have to break the wheel. And just conquering the throne because you think it's yours by right, it's not going to do anything. And Even that's if why Daenerys... it's called Game of Thrones, right? Yeah. They really see it as this chessboard with pieces to move around. You know, you have that carved out um, map that Aegon the Conqueror created on Dragonstone and you just move the pieces around. And that's dangerous because these are real people. We see through Arya's, Arya and uh, Brienne's POV in the Riverlands what happens when the High Lords pay, play their Game of Thrones. Exactly. And uh, this, is, this is the... Like, even if Daenerys came in and won and, and impl implemented lots of uh, brilliant reforms for the small folk, she doesn't have any kids. So once she's dead, it's basically just a free-for-all again. And then the next guy comes in, makes Tywin Lannister his hand, and then all those reforms are gone. That is the realization that she'll come to, that she has to destroy it all. And then we have uh, another interesting comment that I highlighted. I think Danny's dark turn may be influenced by that. I don't remember what that referred to. Probably something I said five minutes ago. Uh, her madness is caused by internal conflict, as is quite often with those dealing with internalized racism. She will harm the wrong target. And I think that is also a very uh, good observation there about Daenerys. And so, yeah, I think to sum this up, we've been going for two hours and 50 minutes. It's, it's good length. <laughs> Maybe if we edit, edit out my when I blanked on, I don't remember what I blanked on for a solid like two minutes but if we edit, uh, edit that out it's uh, it's like two hours ish and summoning it up Daenerys colonialism is a very essential part not only like of her arc but of her character like she has many characteristics of a colonizer and a colonialist mindset but I think what, what's so interesting about her is that we can reasonably project that she's going to go come away from that when she realizes that it's not about inter intervening conquering and fixing it's about destroying. And that's a whole other debate that you can have. Like, if that is, I, I kind of agree with that. Like, a lot of people have to die in order for, for change to happen. Like, the only reason I live in a democracy right now in Germany is because of World War II and how soundly, soundly beaten the Nazis were. And democracy in Germany wasn't like something that we achieved because it was like, like the, the, the allies, they got together. They said, hey, you guys write a constitution. And now this is the constitution. And they enforced it like Nazi sentiments continued to way into the 70s. And the democratization of, of the German people wasn't a thing that, oh, and it's, it's officially a democracy now. And now it's, it's fixed. Everyone's a good person now. That's, that's not how it works. Like, they had to quite literally burn Nazi Germany to the ground. You couldn't have, like, couldn't have had, like, a peaceful transition. Oh, we're going to elect someone else. But we're going to keep them. Eh. And so this is, this is yeah, this, this is the idea. This is the, what, I, what I learned in that, in that seminar about interventionist policies it's an unfortunate truth that most meaningful change comes about as the result of fairly random violent revolutions or like unpredictable things and it's not you can't plan democracy you can't plan uh, to make societies more quote-unquote moral and so i think daenerys is whatever she's going to do fiery dragon holocaust thing it is probably going to improve westeros in the long term but it's the cost that I think people will, will debate over for a long time and whether it, there was an, actually an alternative. Um, but if, we, if we're going to talk about that, we, we just might as well sit here for another two hours. So that would probably be my, my, my summary. Uh, Daenerys, is she a colonizer? Yes. Uh, I think her Mad Queen turn is going to involve with her abandoning that mindset, though, which is like a good and a bad thing at the same time. 
Is there an Orientalist stereotyping in the books? Definitely. Is it uh, is it like does it stand out as particularly bad as compared with other fantasy? Not really. I think the 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 anti-colonialist attitudes that are expressed are far more powerful and 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 complex and interesting. And overall, the books paint a very nuanced picture uh, and all that. So yeah, overall, Orientalism in A Song of Ice and Fire it's it's very much a theme. <laughs> And it's 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 a very interesting take that I've never really seen before about it. Like this would be what I this is my I think I said I said I said my summary like ten minutes ago. Now I just made another one. So I was just gonna let you have the final word, and then we're gonna close down the <laughs> close down the the stream <laughs> before I make five uh, more no, I, summaries. I, I... Yeah, I I think we've been pretty thorough. Uh, I am going to write an essay in 2021 about Orientalism and Song of Ice and Fire. So I'm hoping to, uh, this was kind of like a prep for me. Uh, and I'm also hoping, I'm not sure if it's going to be just about Danny. I might try and do as much as I can about Esso. So uh, but if, if it gets too long, I'm, I'm very strict about my five page limits on my essay. So it might be a a couple of a two or three parter about Orientalism and looking at uh, different places. Um, but yeah, so uh, I guess... I mean, I think we've done a really good job with talking about these uh, issues. And, you know, we're also, um, Archmaester Buzzkill and I are also very cognizant of our standing in the world as two white people in a colonial, and, you know, he's in Germany, I'm in America, in this colonial power. Uh, but that, do that doesn't mean that we can't be nuanced about these, uh, these issues. And so um, follow my blog and, follow, <laughs> and uh, follow me on Twitter and subscribe to my YouTube channel and you can get a lot more of this sweet sweet content so yeah they definitely definitely read amy's uh, blog subscribe to her i mean everyone who's watching this probably came here because of amy not because of me but if for some reason you haven't subscribed to her channel yet you should definitely do so uh yeah you never have if... to read a word i read it to you in this beautiful <sighs> voice that i have yeah and so. I don't even I don't even write essays because I'm too lazy. I'll just do the videos um, or the podcasts, I should say. Yeah, I, I'm not sure when the next episode is going to come out. I haven't even really settled on a on a topic yet. Might be about Stannis Baratheon. All uh, of the topics he has, though, fan. All of the topics that he has there as his future topics. Any of them would be wonderful and fabulous <laughs> to hear about. Yeah, be my guest to come back as a guest because talking about it with other people is definitely way more interesting. But you can't just be the co-host of yet another thing. Oh uh, my god, just... please no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll have some, uh, there's more than enough interesting people here uh, in the chat. Maybe I'll have Micah on and talk about if I could all do the minor just characters. One, oh yeah, Micah would be perfect to talk about minor characters too. Uh, yeah. if I could just do one more plug though, speaking of being a co-host of literally everything. It. Like I said, I co-host John Webster Film, but also Nessie over at The Unspun Yarn, which is a uh, YouTube channel and she also is on Podbean. Uh, we're going to do something called Bleep the Patriarchy. So it's going to be a pseudo-monthly feminist analysis podcast. So if you're interested in all this feminist analysis that I've been doing, uh, I'm going to unleash more than you ever thought possible over there. So, Correct me if I'm wrong, but did we not mention the patri patriarchy once? We mentioned it a couple stream? of times. We oh, okay, okay. Don't worry. I saw a couple oh, of wine glass emojis okay. in the chat. We okay. definitely mentioned okay. the patriarchy. Don't was, you worry. I, was, I, I do okay. my job. <laughs> Woo! Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We did. Yeah, no. sucks. So that's yeah. where uh, so we're gonna do our first episode <laughs> on uh, December second. So uh, hit subscribe on the Unspun Yarn and hit that little bell so you'll get a notification when we're going live. Yeah, that's it. Thanks for I, eleven. We ha we were like up to twelve people there for a while for like a first live stream. The fact that even anyone watched it, 
I think it's great. And I want to thank all of you for listening. And of course, people who are listening to this as a podcast, thank you for listening. I hope you'll be back for more. I realized that this episode is like four times the length of the first episode. Uh, but yeah, who cares? It's interesting. You can you listen to it. You had double portions. the amount of people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, we'll see what, what, what comes up next here at the Archimedes Buzzkills uh, Through the Moon Door, whatever it's called. I need, to, I need to hire like a PR person to f- help me fix my, my name, naming stuff. But yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Oh, boy. <laughs> See you next uh, next time.